2: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: Hi, LS Pod fans. It's JR here. fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com
0: Hello and welcome to the Low Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen.
1: Rodgers is streaking ahead and he's
2: onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a shot! Oh, <laughs> good goal! Good goal. Well for Shira. goal!
0: Yeah! Yes.
2: Yes. bat, no I will win this league anyway. Richard. he's hit it, it's Cradley! <laughs> My name is Mark Hanrahan and I support Swindon Town. Thank you for taking part in this. An absolute treat. It's been um been a while since I've been sort of formally involved with the football club and obviously i've I'm one of these very lucky individuals that supported the club as a kid, got heavily involved in the club um, as a sponsor and yeah just i, I i'm what i love the quote sucking the marrow of life and i like to think that i've done that in my time so far with swindon i try and continue to do that wherever it uh, wherever my time allows me
0: so you talk about this heavy involvement uh with the club that's the start there
2: yeah well um i'm one of these individuals that, f- that fell into a certain job that i could never have believed would take me on the sort of fascinating journeys it did and um i uh, i i I went to university down in Canterbury. I had dreams of joining the Air Force. I'd been, um, I had been, I had family at Lynham, although I'm a Londoner, as you can probably tell from the accent, um, and I live I I've here now and I've lived here all my life. A lot of family in and around Wiltshire and family living at, at Lynham, um, actually based there working for the, um, the Royal Air Force. And it was something that I really wanted to do. And then I, I made a, a bit of a mess of, of joining the Air Force, despite them holding my hand all the way through university. Um, and I was kind of left with this blank sheet of paper in terms of what do I do if my career and thankfully I I had a quite a few qualifications up my sleeve by then that were sort of relevant to the media space and I remember seeing an advert in the Guardian for media sales didn't really know what it was or what it entailed but just remember seeing that you could earn some half decent cash more or less straight away so yeah, went up to London, did a few interviews with various recruitment agencies and got offered a job at a, a little publisher down on the london Kent border. Perfect for me. Still didn't really know what I was doing when I pitched up on day one, but basically what it involved was selling ads um, in the manufacturing industry. I didn't really know much about the industry at the time, but I remember it was dying. And after three years of sort of working business to business magazines, I remember speaking to another recruitment agency. I, I had from from the year of its launch had a real passion for 442, um, the magazine. And prior to that, um, 90 Minutes, one of its predecessors, of, I don't know if you remember the, yes, the
0: yes, yes,
2: bi-weekly, yes, yes. yeah. So wonderful, wonderful times for, in terms of publishing great football magazines. And uh, yeah, I was a subscriber. And um, and I, I remember stamping my feet at a very well-trusted recruitment agency and saying, it's 442 or bust for me, and I'm going to do something else. Because I never really had any skin in the game in media sales. And then along came an opportunity, it just came out of the blue. They were recruiting and um, I joined 442 as uh, what they called a senior sales executive. And what that basically meant was speaking to a lot of West End uh, media agencies up in London that represented um, some pretty decent brands. And essentially trying to sell them off the page advertising. So the sort of things that annoy you and I when we flick through magazines wanting to read wonderful content and bumping into back then advertising for cigarettes and beer and so on and so forth. And that that went phenomenally well. I think I, because I had a real passion for the magazine, I really understood um, you know, its position in the market, what it was trying to achieve. It launched at a time where the men's magazine market had gone absolutely ballistic. So you had FHM, Loaded, um, Esquire, Q, etc. And I think the the commercial team at the time had probably fair to say had lost sight of 442's potential importance in that in that men's magazine market. Never mind football. And it was just something that I really latched onto that this was a what we used to call vertical content men's magazine which basically meant specialist content magazine so catering for football but it was at a time that post Britpop explosion of um, football being incredibly important to men's lives and suddenly be, being very on vogue in terms of you know media brands and they all had a curiosity for talking to football fans but they didn't know how to do it and we were a very simple um, uh, medium to get their heads around, and me being a pretty simple bloke, I had some pretty simple conversations. We got some lots of brands that never been involved in the magazine involved. It was a wonderful start to life. How long were you with Four Four Two? So I joined Four Four Two in um, two thousand and one. I had two quite quite long stints in media terms at the magazine. The 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 break from Four Four Two kind of links in with our Swindon Town sponsorship, which will probably make most fans chuckle, I think because we were a bit of a devious bunch behind the scenes and yeah to say underhand tactics after my first thing voluntarily came to an end when i went to join a competitor but yeah i joined in um i joined in sort of 2001 i remember the strange thing is i remember one of my earliest memories working for 442 was obviously the tragedy that happened in new york with the twin towers this will kind of paint a picture of what the what the kind of working space looked like back then i remember uh, we didn't have pcs on our on our desks Everything was done through these little index cards, all your contacts with your clients, etc. And I remember there were a few TVs dotted around the office. And um, I remember being on the phone to a huge client desperately trying to connect with the marketing director at a time where 9-11 was unfolding. You imagine that happening now. Like it, you, it's everything's so much more immediate. But back then, obviously, unfortunately, clearly for, the, you know, for for the world, particularly for New York and all those people that lost their lives, you know, you had planes hitting the towers. Whilst I was on the phone trying to sell advertising, and um, and I remember the marketing director actually came on the phone and said, like, you know, you're either incredibly stupid or incredibly ignorant. Are, are you not aware what's unfolding in the world right now? You know, there are more important things than advertising. And yeah, I remember looking at the TV and thinking, oh my, you know, my goodness, I'm, everyone being rocked by that. But interestingly, it then led to one of the, you know, it turned into a great relationship. I remember the individual at the time phoning me back a day or so later and saying, you know what, I was unbelievably harsh. I'm really sorry. Let's get together for a uh, for a you know a meeting and a coffee and yeah it turned into one of my sort of real long standing media relationships so um, yeah that, that that was early memories um, and I do remember just you know being at being at the magazine at the time and just feeling like everything I touched was sort of kind of untapped potential and you take things to market and speak very openly and honestly to people about the potential of the brand and how football could help you talk to guys in you know in a way that not many other media brands could because it was talking to them about their favourite subject and it was quite an easy hook in and once you got people to really sort of buy into the fact they're in a nice secure environment that wasn't all sort of salacious content I mean you know you've got to remember at that time the men's magazine market whilst it was doing well with numbers really did sell itself off the back of you know um, how can I put it Uh, (laughs) you know scantily clad women on the front cover to try and keep this politically correct. And and for many brands, that was becoming quite unsafe. So 442 was not only a safe environment, um, it was an incredibly powerful one because we had a very strong subscriber base. Our numbers in terms of audience was growing at a rate of knots. We were developing some really exciting products in the online space. And yeah, it, um, it was like, it literally, it sounds like a cliche, but it felt like you're on this plane on the runway that was just on this fantastic upwards trajectory and moving at a rate of knots. It was um, a really exciting time.
0: Well, here's my... 442 experience and it leads on to the sponsorship actually because I was a subscriber to the magazine for many years and it got to about 2008 and i remember i was getting frustrated with sort of the, the way my mind was working with football and i wanted more than i guess that laddie culture sort of thing that 442 had championed but in a in a much in, i always enjoyed it i subscribed but i think i was leaning more towards when saturday comes and i think ultimately i was looking for what the blizzard quarterly is now and i remember going home after reading a 442 and i remember going home to my now wife and just saying i'm 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 not subscribing anymore that's it i'm gonna I'm gonna cancel it. This isn't for me. the next day Swindon announced sponsorship <laughs> with four four two with all of this, and that is no word of a lie, and that kept my subscription for a fair few years. So were you involved in that? In that uh, in that sponsorship campaign, or were you already out of the uh, out of the magazine at that point?
2: Well, so in a roundabout way, I was involved, and um, this is where I think most Swindon fans will probably appreciate the broad grin that I now hold on my face when I remember the story. We've been we've been flirting with a few clubs, and um, obviously, being a, a massive town fan, I was always always pushing swindon's agenda at 442 uh, to the point where i would pretty much wear a replica shirt despite the fact we were sort of you know suited i'd always be in replica in the office um and i probably oversold it to the point there it became a little bit of a joke in the office um the funny thing about that deal was i've been at haymarket um, media group who were the owners of 442 at the time i've been there a number of years and it had been really really successful and i'd a few companies. Sort of, you know, they they tend to sort of send recruitment agents to tap you up and talk to you about going and essentially replicating what you're doing at 442, but in other markets. And um, a lovely chap um, contacted me from um, a company called Future Publishing. The irony of that is that's where 442 now lives, having they acquired 442 last year from Haymarket. But I remember they contacted me and offered me a pretty decent package to make the switch up from Teddington, which is where 442 was, for those that don't know, down in southwest London, to switch my career up into central London, um, up near Marylebone and go and work for Future running their video games division. On paper, in terms of finances, it was a, a much, much, much bigger jump up loads more responsibility and um, lots more money at a time where I was a really ambitious chap and also I was knocking holes in my house so I needed to pay more and more or increasingly large bills the 442 deal came about because <laughs> I'd been at future I'll never forget this I've been at future I think about a week maybe two weeks and I was just settling in with my new team and again similar story I was 442 bonkers really rubbing everyone's nose in it and I couldn't believe I got this like little pop up on my desktop saying 442 agrees Swindon town deal <laughs> and and I looked at it and I just could not believe it and the, the two guys that primarily drove it in my absence were a chat called Martin Jones and a chat called Hugh Slyer, two really dear friends of mine. We, um, we pretty much grew up um, together at Haymarket, albeit Martin would probably argue that um, and say that obviously he was the dad in the relationship. Martin and Hugh really drove that agenda when I was gone. I think the thing was, with me out of the picture, they always knew that Swindon had great potential um, and actually were a really forward-thinking club. The, um, the takeover had been agreed with Jeremy Ray, um, Andrew Fitton, uh, Nick Watkins et al., and they just had a real it was like a perfect melding of those agendas. both the club wanted to kind of have a complete overhaul refresh it had been obviously troubled with off off the pitch problems but you also had you know this four four two proposition which it wasn't about writing big checks but it was about helping uh, the club polish its brand, introducing lots of new exciting brands in and around the football space to the club, and helping those local brands that are already engaging with the club enjoy a little bit of um rub off from these big sort of big multinationals but i'll never forget it after that story broke i got an email from hugh who at the time was the editor stroke editor in chief yeah he just sent me a little cheeky one-liner um saying i hope you like our new shirt deal and um (laughs) as it turned out i stayed at future for i i won't this is the first time rich i've admitted this and martin and hugh will will probably be kicking themselves but I remember playing the biggest game of poker with those two guys when I met with them a couple of months down the line after the deal was signed, and they were really keen to get me back involved. They didn't really want me to leave in the first place, and it was a big, juicy carrot to um, draw me back in because they knew it was my soft spot. And I I played hardball with them, but it literally was one of the toughest things I had to do in my career because I knew the stakes for me personally were so high. I had an opportunity not only to go back doing something I loved on a business front, in terms of the day-to-day, but I also had this wonderful opportunity to engage with the club that really has been arguably the biggest passion in my life. And I knew that I was going to get to see a whole different side of the club and, you know, really make a difference to something that was really, really dear to me. Anyway, I caved in, basically. I've been been away (laughs) about About ten, eleven months, and I agreed a package to return to four four two, where I returned as commercial director, and it was the longer of my two stints. And yeah, it, I mean, it was just wonderful. Um, I, I already had some connection behind the club. A really good friend of mine is Nick Judd, um, former communications head at the club, and um, I, you know, I knew people like Chris Tanner, so I, I already kind of, to a point you know had some familiarity around the club and it was just a question of then yeah grabbing that taking it to the next level really really exciting time I mean I'm talking about it now and the hairs are standing up at the back of my neck it was a wonderful time here's Foley far side is Bowling. Bowden's cross up in the air Felgate punches away comes to McLaren
0: who hits it through a kind of players and he's found the net That could well be the winning goal
2: with just three and a half minutes remaining of extra time. Ross McLaren, his third goal of the season, second in the Littlewoods Cup, through a crowd of Bolton
0: players and into the back of the net. What were the perks of working for 4-4-2, especially during that Swindon era?
2: Well, so luckily for me, I, I came back and sort of—I wouldn't say I'd been a diva, but i basically said to you know the brand, look, I, I just want a license to roam. I think I've proved that, you know, I can sort of generate decent revenues for you know for the brand, and it was fair to say the brand itself was really taking advantage of that, boxing above its weight in terms of just numbers in the market. You know, I mean, the audience comparative to a lot of other big brands was actually relatively small but it obviously it was very powerful very niche and that story just resonated all around the world and i just found that i mean we had i think it was at the time we had about 15 or 16 overseas licenses and um that gave me rich opportunities to go and talk to brands like, um, one of my favorite brands that I worked with was Nike. We did a lot of work with Nike as a brand, not necessarily involving Swindon, but I just remember spending quite a bit of time out in Oregon um, on the campus. So like, you know, talking to the absolute marketing Uber gods. And that was kind of testament to 442's pull really, that, you know, the very, very top marketing executives at a company like Nike, an organization like Nike, you know, wanted to talk to us, wanted our authority in that football space and wanted to listen to us. I mean, Nike kind of entered the football space really heavily from sort of 94 onwards, So it it was an interesting beg, bedfellow for 442 because both brands kind of grew in that football space together and had a lot of shared history. So spending time at, on the campus in in Oregon, if you kind of close your eyes, anyone that has an enthusiasm for trainers or sportswear has probably always seen the Nike Oregon sort of, you know, branding on their sort of particularly on their, their more uh lifestyle gear and maybe conjures up images in the head of what it kind of looks like I, it's just a huge huge like a massive university just full of, of swoosh clad marketeers um really smart people and i remember having some particularly around world cup time we would do some wonderful executions with them that we would that we roll out right around the world and i mean that was cracking i think um you know, I always had a dream as a kid playing at Wembley. That was another another sort of dream it allowed me to achieve. I, I ended up playing there three times, and you know, it was one of one of my favourite memories of playing at Wembley. One particular game, I was up against Bobby Barnes, our ex-striker. Obviously, he was um, BFA, yeah, yeah, he was playing centre forward for a, a celeb eleven. <laughs> and I remember a, a lad bought bought, uh, bought him down, and he's he's got a penalty, and he spotted it up and. I'd been telling him, telling him before the game that obviously I was a massive town fan, and there was no way I was going to let him score past me. And to his utter incredulity, Bobby puts one in the bottom right-hand corner, and I was able to tip it around the post. And he was genuinely, genuinely devastated. He, he wouldn't talk to me after the game. He really, really upset him. So yeah, playing at Wembley, you know, multiple times. Um, I got the opportunity to play at Stamford Bridge. Um, God blimey, so many amazing, but. I have to be honest like the one the one memory that I really have which kind of links us back into Swindon was the first opportunity I had to ever play at the county ground I remember seeing it was funny because although we were involved as a club, I saw an advert pop up for the first ever play on the pitch event. Mm. And then I remember thinking, blimey, it felt like they were giving the crown jewels away. I only paid about 150 quid or something like that. And I got to play 90 minutes at the county ground. And um, that included, you know, give, being given a full goalkeeper kit and just being able to mix with, you know, sort of 25 odd dying, you know, dying in the wall Swindon fans. And I, I can still remember it was a, there was a massive electrical storm going on over the pitch, and I remember that. And I, I just remember we—I think it was a penalty shootout. The game was was a draw, and we finished with a penalty shootout, which we won. And there was a, a sliding knee celebration at, the, at an empty town end. But oh, yeah, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful.
0: My confession is: there's two things about the county ground that I've never done—never gone behind the scenes—and yeah. um, I've never, ever been on the pitch in. Any capacity, including pitch invasions.
2: I don't know. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. But I remember getting a real ticking off from Nick Watkins quite sort of further down <laughs> the line um, after the Port Vale game. My, my little my little lad, he's not so little anymore. My now fifteen year old son is um, is a town fan like his dad, and um, I remember that particular game you could see that everyone was shaping up for a pitch invasion but the funny thing was you remember imagine me sat up in the director's box and my son in my ear saying like oh dad you know if they all go on the pitch can we go on the pitch and i was like look son that involves us walking out the director's box down to pitch side going over the barriers <laughs> which is highly illegal and running around on the pitch and i said i don't think that's going to win me many f- uh, fans but i never forget it I, my son started crying at the time he was only little and he was crying he, he was so upset and um I thought, Do you know what, it's now or never. So, uh, yeah, with a few sort of backs turned, I, I managed to sneak my way out of the comfy seats and down to the front of the Arkles. And, uh, yeah, there's a wonderful picture of, of uh, myself and Archie all dressed up in... Uh, I remember we dressed up as Palo that day. We had our green woolly hats on and our our, <laughs> our green, uh, green jackets and uh, our red and white scarves. And, uh, yeah, just running around on the pitch, sort of having pictures taken and things like that. Uh, it was truly wonderful. But, um, I mean... That, that was also another interesting, I'd say, a perk. Again, it was a another kind of call to arms by the clubs, clubs clever, clever advertising. Actually, after we appointed Paolo, I remember um, just sort of wondering how much it would be to get my son involved as a mascot, and I, ne- I never tried to take you know advantage in that respect. You always were appreciative that when those opportunities come along, you know the club actually really does need that cash. You know it does actually make a difference, and um, I remember paying for my son to be Paolo's very first mascot. And they literally treated us like royalty that day. It was wonderful. Uh, but the wonderful thing was he wasn't the only, the only mascot. There was another uh, lad along for the ride. They both received exactly the same treatment. I was really impressed with the guys behind the scenes. And walking into the, the, manager's, the manager's office and meeting um, Paolo and Fabrizio was really nerve-wracking. But um, my son had taught himself some pidgin Italian and had, uh, had introduced himself to Paolo with this pidgin Italian. And Paolo, I remember Paolo being really impressed by that. And, um, yeah, just a genuinely, genuinely nice guy. Genuinely nice guy, as was Fabrizio. I mean, the perks, the list of perks just goes on and on and on. So you want me to carry on boring you, I'm more than happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be tough for you because, as you've said, you are not a native of Sweet Lady Wiltshire. You're a Londoner through and through. And you have this, you know, it's a high profile career where you've got to do a lot of traveling and things like that. So how difficult was it for you to juggle professional life, family life with Swindon Town?
2: When I was a real youngster, before I learned to drive, you know, getting up there, I was always reliant on piggybacking, you know, the parents trips up to Wiltshire. Wiltshire, And it was usually Christmases birthdays Easter you know the school holidays very rarely was I allowed to get on a train from London and get all the way out to Wiltshire by myself because I was just too young and uh, obviously it's, it's quite a quite way from home back then I would go as much as I could as a youngster that typically ended up being sort of, you know, maybe six or seven home games a season. And then just trying to follow the club through Seafax back then. I just remember that vividly as sort of time wears on and you get your driving license, things become a little bit easier. And I remember having a little clapped out beige fiesta and driving that from sort of Southeast London to most home games. And, um, And but those trips were just—I remember back then, every every day felt like an adventure. I think mainly because I never knew whether the car was going to make it to Wiltshire and back. But I, I just remember doing that, and usually taking a seat in the town end, and you know that that bait at the end of that journey i.e you know sort of a couple of hours of absolute heaven in the county ground as it was for me i think it it made it it made me appreciate it even more the fact that i had to make a big effort the fact that i had to shuffle my personal life the fact that you know i had this sort of 220 mile round trip It, it really was sort of feeding the passion i I don't have any recollections, even like the games where we may have may have got absolutely thumped, and particularly you know when we had a downturn in fortunes. The sort of you know Donegan and Blatchley years weren't particularly great, and I remember you know coming back from some of those games just thinking you know blimey, I've spent a lot of money as a kid <laughs> and a lot of time, and is it really what But it's funny, I, all of those bad memories just fade really quickly, and you kind of cling on to you know the the good ones. And I think once, obviously, once. I got involved with the club on a professional level it just became kind of effortless because I didn't really have to nag my employers to let me leave the office early in order to get to the club you know home or away because you know being involved trying to you know keep a finger on the pulse of what the club was doing you know it was it became part of my job I was being paid you know effectively as I saw it to you know follow the follow the town and um yeah, it, it it just became effortless. You know, obviously, if I was in London, I could get a train out quite easily, or I could leave that the office a little bit earlier, get back to my home on the sort of London Kent border, and you know, get in my car and drive up there. And, and and I always had family, and I still have family in the area. And I you know, whenever I come up, we always sort of stop over. So um, you know, it it, it 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 was just a question of managing your time. It it's something that just becomes normal. Rich, I think fans that maybe live you know a mile or so from the ground maybe take it for granted you know for me that logistical challenge of being a, a you know a London based Swindon fan I, I, I have no doubt it not only fed my passion but um, it probably helped me in the long-term profession as well because it taught me how to sort of juggle my diary and even now i'm very very good at you know at, at moving about um when i need to and being sort of i try and maximize my time and i do put a lot of that down to knowing it was kickoff for example at a certain time knowing i needed to get home for a certain time in order to get on the car to beat the m25 to then get on the m4 you know factor in a little bit of time for getting invariably stuck on the m4 and then finding my way into town finding some parking etc so I, th- I think it actually probably helped me Kelly is only a couple of yards away, but Digby manages to push it one-handed onto the bar. Your first game then? So my first game, um, and I still have fantastically vivid memories of it, was 1987, it was January, and it was against Fulham in the FA Cup. My uh, so I said it, I mentioned my uncle earlier, so he was a huge Swindon fan and had been through the kind of you know the Danny Williams years, right the way up to that point. And so he had really enjoyed the rough and the smooth. And um, he had found out that I'd developed a a real passion for football. And I'd been taken on my 10th birthday to see um, Tottenham play. So I'm going to give my mum a couple of tickets to go and see Spurs. And so she took me along. And I just remember that game really sort of, I was like, oh, is this it? And the funny thing about that was I was only little at the time. And we were quite high up in the stand, tucked away. We were standing up for the whole sort of 90 minutes. And my mum and dad didn't really do football at all. And so... I guess it's the equivalent of maybe my son plays rugby and when I go and watch rugby I haven't got a clue what's going on and I think that probably spoils his enjoyment of it because his dad stood there not having a clue and I think it was something like that with that Spurs game I went to and then I remember it can't have been, it must have only been a week or two later but my uncle got wind I'd been taken to a Spurs game and he's like I'm not having any of that and he, he took me along to um, the Fulham game and I and the way he did it was quite clever because I was a, an aspiring young goalkeeper back then and he told me oh, he said we, we've, got a, we've got a lad we just signed he's going to play in goal we signed him from Man United and he plays for England and I was like wow Like this, this probably is something I need to go and watch and, and the difference between the Swindon game and the Tottenham game was the proximity to the pitch mm-hmm. I remember standing right at the front of the away stand and I was just to the left of the goal and I could smell the pitch and I could hear the players and I could literally feel the passion. And it, it was magic. It literally was love at first sight. And I remember thinking, why didn't I get that at, at the Spurs game? And you know in your heart it's meant to be. And, you know, it's 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 just funny because I, I, I heart back to that moment. I remember the, the moment I fell in love with Swindon Town and that was it. And it's you know I, I, I remember it was a 1-0 win I believe and Dave Bamber scored the winner and that was that was a hell of a team I mean Swindon were very much on the up at the time Um it, it felt at the time that Lou Macari was being presented with a bottle of bells before pretty much every game to me. He was being hauled out on the pitch and being given these presentations. Every time I went to the county ground, we invariably won. We had a very fit, very physical team that scored goals. Didn't necessarily play the most attractive football, but very, very effective and went until like the, the equivalent of sort of Fergie time now, you know, into the 95th minute and they just ran teams off the uh, off the pitch. And I mean, I remember we had some fantastic players. I guess the, the, the key thing i took away from that game was what i said earlier it's it was the moment i, I realized i fell in love with the club and and i remember i sort of have sketchy memories of the Bamber goal i remember floating home to catford having had the most wonderful day uh, and saying we're beating this team i believe they were a division above as well and we'd we'd beaten them well that was only one nil i think we really dominated the game um and yeah, I mean I, I remember falling in love with a kit. I just remember the old I think it was a Lounge Lambert sponsored shirt. It was the old red spool shirt with the V neck. Yeah. That, that, I think it had the classic white pinstripe on it. Yeah, yeah it, it it was just oh, it was a wonderful time. As I'm as I'm as I'm saying it now, I'm just grinning ear to ear. I just uh, very very fond memory. Obviously, I don't I don't get to talk like this much about early memories of Swindon. So this is um yeah, it's quite special. <laughs>
0: what about other I mean Across from beginning to current day, any other unique memories that you have following Swindon
2: I remember a couple of sad memories um weirdly I remember um, so I mentioned my uncle a long standing steward at the club, and I remember um, he went to an away game, Bristol City, and unfortunately got injured when he was attacked outside the ground by a couple of fans and I remember then my my parents saying to me, "Look, you know I really." don't think you should be going. I mean, he's the most inoffensive man in the world, my uncle. And so to think that, you know, he had his car and himself like pretty badly smashed up at the time and for no, no other reason than attending a football match. I remember thinking, is is that, you know, is, is that really what, what this game's all about? Um, I remember that really sticking in my mind. Um, weirdly, I said earlier, you sort of forget the bad times, but I also remember, I remember the, the Sunderland 1-0 game at Wembley. And I remember crying utter tears of joy. I mean, I'd never experienced sort of, you know, elation quite like that. And there was a lot of things that underpinned it in terms of being a Swindon fan in London was quite hard in terms of the stick I would take from my mates. And I remember it just felt like point proven, you know, when we went to, when we went to Wembley and won and we were in the top flight and a lot of my mates were Millwall and Charlton fans. And it actually meant that we were going to be on a par, if not above those teams. Then you can imagine the humiliation a week later when we got demoted for the illegal payment scandal. And, um, I got absolutely destroyed at school. And and I remember when the story broke. Obviously, again, technologically, it was a very different world back then. And I remember I got a phone call from my uncle in Wiltshire, and and, and he was in pieces. And he said, son, like, you know, you need to have a listen to this. And he held the phone to the radio, and I could hear Sean Hodgetts basically saying we have been demoted to divisions. And I couldn't – I was utterly – it was literally like a bereavement. I was utterly, utterly devastated. So much so that I think, you know, a few years later when we went back and beat Leicester, it just kind of felt like justice had been done. It wasn't as as emotionally, even though that game was incredible, emotionally, the Sunderland game still, for me at that time, meant so much more. And to have that taken away was brutal. I'm talking about sort of, you know, sort of bad, sort of bad memories as they were. But I remember one of my favourite memories, if you don't mind me leaping back into that Leicester game, if I'm not getting too ahead of myself something i've always sort of wondered was i remember when we got the penalty it was free all and we got the penalty and there was this little lad stumbling around and he it, i think the kid was lost <laughs> I genuinely i don't I, I just remember he was wandering about in his polyester action man t-shirt and shorts it was the weirdest combination socks and sandals the whole nine yards and i remember we got this penalty and i thought oh my god like this kid's probably going to be a town fan for the rest of his life and if he doesn't watch this moment it's going to be something that will, you know, he'll always think back and go, yeah, I was there, but I never really saw it. So I remember getting hold of this kid and standing him up on the seat in front of me and going, look, just watch this moment. Don't, and I remember screaming in his poor little kid's ear going, don't ever forget this moment. Don't ever forget this moment. And then Bowdoin slams the penalty home and I never know what happened to the kid after that. I, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't throw him in the crowd and turn him into a piece of ticker tape, but... <laughs> I remember that really, really clearly, and yeah, obviously the the rest was history. But yeah, I've often wondered what happened to that little fellow. He? He, he's probably scarred for life, and he plays golf now. But <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, very happy memories. Um, you know, there's I've, I've been, you know, if you sort of fast forward into sort of more present memories, I remember being with my good friend Nick Judd at the um, the Charlton playoff game, and again really resonated with me the away game in particular because we were on my sort of on my manor Charlton's not a million miles from where I live I knew the ground was going to be full of lads I went to school with and was given a really hard time by growing up and the circumstances around that result and the way that result unfolded it was probably the second if not one of or if not the most emotional night of my life as a Swindon fan for for reasons that went beyond us getting to Wembley and I never forget um, Juddy and I bouncing around in the away end at the final whistle. And um, and as we're walking out the ground, looking at my phone and my phone had gone ballistic and there were all these pictures that had been sent. And apparently, I've been caught on Sky Sports just frantically kissing the badge on my shirt just <laughs> after half the time, caught in a state of utter prayer. Yeah, it was again wonderful. I, I I never forget when the final whistle went. We've been getting uh, any fans that were there that, that night I remember we were getting merciless stick from the away from the home fans. And there was one lad in particular who was just on the absolute wind up the whole game and rubbing his belly with like fake laughter. And, and when we've ultimately gone and done the business, and um, you know, we, we've tucked the penalty away, we've won the match. I remember sitting and seeing this lad being thoroughly miserable and literally it felt like the whole away end was just baiting this one guy who was just sat there with his head in his hands. Uh, to be fair he took it quite well I thought. Yeah, walking out the ground and I just floated home that night. Obviously it wasn't to be at the end of the season but that was a magical magical night in many ways I think probably sums up my you know my life following Swindon really in that you know it feels like the end product wasn't to be but it's so much more to me than you know, that end of season promotion or, you know, a, a massive game at Wembley. That playoff semi final was absolute dynamite for me. Real, real fond memory.
0: Any other favourite games?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, one of my favourites, I remember because of its. it was like the start of a new era, was when we played Real Sociedad in Glenn Hoddle's first pre-season game at the county ground. And I remember that was really exotic at that time. It was uh, John Toshak, I believe, who's a friend of Hoddle's, who brought Sociedad over to the UK. And it was just the fact that we'd signed one of my childhood heroes. And I remember that night was really balmy in Swindon. It was a lovely evening. I remember being stood in the old shriven and road stand, our old sort of green monster, as I used to call it. And again, stood quite close to the front. There was this very sort of stylish, slick Spanish team knocking the ball about. And I remember hearing Sean Taylor barking at all the players, but not not knowing their names and being mercilessly ribbed because he he just kept on calling Nicky Summerby or you. Yeah, I remember the the game was fairly unspectacular in terms of Swindon's output. We didn't score, um, but I remember we moved, we started moving the ball around in a way that I don't even think we did as well under Aussie. And I knew it was the start of something special. So I remember leaving the game that night, kind of thinking something's really happening here at this club. You know, things are really going to be interesting for the next few years. Because I think it was just the fact that we'd we'd bought a club like Sociedad at the time, who were kind of, you know, a giant over in Spain, that we'd managed to get them to come to the county ground. That was quite a signal of intent in itself. And yeah, just all these sort of like olive skin sort of Spanish professional footballer swanning around the county ground pitch and you know being directed by obviously Hoddle himself that was a very very special game for me very very special game let's talk about the opposition
0: who from your time supporting Swindon there's two questions to this that you've been on the opposition you thought I wish he played for Swindon and the ones that you love to hate as well Oh
2: blimey! What a question. There's so many of them because I, I guess I've been I've been following the club for over thirty odd years, and we always get rascals turn up at the counterground. ground. I think you know our, our support, even at our best, can be very prickly. So we do tend to incur the ire of, um, of, of of away teams in terms of sort of playing against us. I think I remember thinking during our Premier League season. I remember thinking you know obviously the likes of you know Cantonar you know, it was just, I was relishing Cantona coming to the county ground and you knew that something spectacular was going to happen. And it was funny because you kind of, yeah, you you love to watch him. You wanted him on the pitch, but at the same time, you kind of didn't because you knew he had the potential to just do, you obviously just obliterate you on his own. So certainly from that premier league season, I remember Cantona and also Ian Wright was a real thorn in our side. I mean, I remember that season I was quite lucky I got given quite a few sort of tickets to go to Premier League games I remember going to Wimbledon games and and that waspish Ian Wright at his best where he was an utter wind-up merchant but just scored the most sublime goals Mm -hmm. and just obviously executed that incredible chip at the county ground and you knew that pretty much every week you were seeing players like that come to the counterground. You were like, I'd love to see them in a Swindon shirt, but you knew it was never going to happen. The best that we ended up getting in that respect was Sanchez and McAveney and Terry Fennick, you know, and well, not not quite the same sort of calibre. But obviously, like most people, they'll mention John McGinley. I mean, we had some epic battles against Bolton and I just remember M- McGinley just loved to wind us up. Just absolutely loved wind us up. And I guess the, the modern day McGinley for me has been Alex Revell. You know, the fact that he sort of pulled on the town shirt and looked utterly hapless and then wherever he went, you know, whatever shirt he pulled on, he just seemed to come back and score goals and actually look like a lower leagues version of Alan Shearer at his best. That always really rankled with me. I always used to get the hump when we took players on loan that would come to the County ground and be utterly hopeless, yeah. but would go elsewhere and, you know, and, and just, and bloom and, you know, there may well be very good reasons for that.
0: Before we go into the squad now, because we've already been talking forever, which is amazing. I hope everyone's enjoying this because oh, it's all coming back. These memories, um, rivalries. Who's who's the one that you that you love to beat the most?
2: Yeah, for me, it's it's got to be. Well, I say the one. It's one of Charlton, Millwall, or West Ham, mm. and that will probably obviously surprise a lot of town fans. But hopefully, you'll you'll appreciate the geography. You know, I I grew up, I went to a a typical roughy, tufty, South East London comprehensive school. And they were all Millwall. And they were all Charlton. And they were all West Ham. And they were always at each other's throats. And I ended up being the kind of whipping boy. Because when they weren't all at each other, I was the easy target for all three of them. At at the time, I remember growing up having really lofty aspirations, you know, for Swindon. As I say, we come out the back of the Macari era Ozzie had taken over as boss. We were playing some fantastic football. Obviously we had Wembley and Sunderland. And then a few obviously that had gone a little bit pear-shaped. And then we've appointed Glenn and you know, even like the the local lads amongst the, the you know, amongst those I was growing up with just would not allow me my my moment in the sunshine. You know, they would refuse to accept that Lou Macari was a brilliant manager. He was to them he was just like, you know, just this lower league nobody that maybe once turned out for United. They really underplayed everything. They wouldn't <laughs> allow me that glory. You know, when we signed our dealers, I was like, Yeah, we've got like a World Cup like winner and Spurs legend as our manager. Like what more do we need to do to impress London football fans? They were like Nah, no nah, he's he's rubbish you know it's all tied into Argentina and the Falklands and you know and now he shouldn't even be in the UK it was some of the things I used to have to put up with <laughs> then got appointed Glenn Hoddle and the first thing I remember I, I'd had this big debate this will make you chuckle talking about Nestor again I'd had this big debate with this guy that I went to school with I'll never forget it um, and we were debating whether or not Led, uh, Nesta Lorenzo was a better footballer than Glenn Hoddle. Now, if you imagine at the time, Hoddle didn't have any involvement at Swindon, and we had got this World Cup centre-half, and Hoddle at the time looked like a, a you know a broken-kneed 30-something that was never going to play the game, and so I was coming at it from a point of view of, well, look, he's never going to play the game again. Clearly, Nesta Lorenzo is currently the better player, and we had this big debate, and he just espoused that Glenn Hoddle one of the greatest players in the world still, and I was like, poo-pooing it. And I remember it wasn't that long after we appointed him and I suddenly, obviously, the tables were turned and even then they wouldn't allow me the glory. I was like, hang on, you told me he was one of the world's greatest players. Now we've got him as manager and you're telling me he's an absolute joke. You know, he's going to bomb. He's, he's, he's not cut out for management. So I guess what I'm trying to say about rivalries for me it's it, some of it without me to sort of tug on the heartstrings too much for some of it, it actually got really personal. Mm. you know I used to have to put up with an awful lot of abuse. I used to kind of constant farmer accents in my ear and i'd be like well i haven't, <laughs> i don't speak with that well you know west country twang i'm you know i I'm, I'm a South Londoner, but they would always remind me that I was a plastic farmer you know some like i said some of it was you know what it's like when you're a kid at school it's incessant and it became Swindon town actually became a, almost like a bit of a weakness that the bullies would actually look to exploit and and actually some of it really did hurt and it used to really upset me i loved the club that much that i used to really feel that and um, so nothing felt better than when we turned over a London club, because I literally could go back into school, puff my chest out. And I remember one game, we, we thumped Millwall at the county ground. And it was an interesting one, because I remember being sat next to Fitzroy Simpson's family. I was only little at the time, no connection with the club, but I just remember his dad was a real extrovert. And we were right, if you imagine, right on that divide between the Millwall fans and the Swindon fans. And they didn't know that this was Fitzroy Simpson's family. And is that, I remember Fitz, I don't know if he scored, but he was having an absolute blinder. And his dad just used to stand up and kind of raise his hands to the sky and just like, oh, my son, he's absolute wonderful. My son, all these Millwall fans absolutely baying for his blood. And I'm sat there next to him going, oh, my goodness, like, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure which way to look. Just look straight at the pitch. Don't get eye contact with any of that lot to my left. Anyway, um, I remember they had. Um, it was the era when Mill had a really talented Dutch midfielder called Etienne Verveer, who was probably like the Mill version of Philippe Cuervo, season one. <laughs> um, and I remember he was really elegant. But we ran the show, and I think Lingy scored a lovely, lovely goal. Sort of slipped it in the near side post. Very Martin, very Martin Ling. I, I remember that, and then I also remember Fraser in that game. I'm sure it's Fraser just absolutely pulled one out the back of that. Like diving backwards from the penalty spot and clawing this sort of chip away. And I just remember being on my feet and getting dogs abuse from the Millwall fans. So yeah, for me, it was really important that we turned over London clubs because it it just gave me that opportunity to crow because, and especially if we won well, you know, if we won by like, you know, three, one, four nil, something like that, that was always extra special. And you know, the, the West country rivalries for me, um, I think it's always Bristol city. Um, I remember I was I was asked to commentate on a my very first sort of co-commentating um, experience following town. Um, I was asked by um, the Beeb to come and do a um, a game at Ashton Gate, and I remember like really needing to kind of nail my my trousers to the seat and act in a professional fashion because I I was really losing myself in the commentary box. But the That sort of goes back to, you know, the incident I mentioned right at the start of this, where there was an unfortunate incident outside the ground when my my uncle, unfortunately, was just walking back to his car after stewarding duties. He had been asked to go to Ashton Gate and help steward the away fans. Mm. And um, yeah, he, he, he suffered some pretty unpleasant injuries, and his car got smashed to pieces in in that incident. And um, and I remember I, that on a personal level at the time. I remember because he's the, just the loveliest guy in the world, and I, I just remember that was so unnecessary. And there's already obviously that kind of fierce rivalry between the clubs anyway. But for me, that, that just sort of um, sowed a, a, a sort of totally different kind of seed in terms of I always wanted to beat Bristol City. You know, for me, actually, beating Bristol City means more than, you know, than, than beating those herberts in yellow. Um, and I know that will incur the wrath of a lot of local fans. But, yeah, it sort of runs a little bit more personally for me with City. Well boys, it's a grand old team to play for. And it's a grand old team to
0: see. And if you
1: know the history. It's enough to make your heart go. Oh, We oh,
0: oh, hey, don't care what, the what Newcastle say What the hell do we care? So here we are, then. It's time to talk about this squad that you've created full of legends. But we'll start with the bench. First up, David Kerslake and Charlie Henry.
2: Yeah, so, well, I mean, but okay, so David Kerslake, I remember when we picked him up from QPR, and I believe he was Aussie's sort of first big signing. Um, say big I'm sure it was only about 150-200 grand but I remember at the time thinking it was a a real princely sum I hadn't really heard of Kerr's before but you know there were rumours he was an half decent player, and um, the the thing about Kerslake that I used to love was just literally fleet footed down the wing. You know he he looked like an athlete, he moved like an athlete. Um, just you know great delivery. Um, just you know that right hand side, whilst Kerslake was certainly in his first spell, was he was utterly fantastic. It was an interesting one when we sold him because I remember him, him going on the Leeds and not really I mean he went for big money but I remember he, he just wasn't really particularly well thought of when he went up there and obviously he went on to other clubs and you know, had his time at Spurs and whatnot but the thing about Kerslake was he just sort of purred like class I mean, he to me kind of I'm a bit of a petrol head and he he was kind of like a Rolls-Royce you know right back he was just you know, up and down the pitch. Obviously, golden era. So he's surrounded by quality. You know that um, that particular promotion, stroke, demotion team was arguably probably the strongest in 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 the history I've had supporting the club. And he was such a big part of that. You know, he was he was. You know, when you would talk about who, who are your best players, you know, I don't know if you remember sensible soccer. Oh yeah, I, I remember he would always be the one that would have a gold star next to his name. You know, <laughs> it would just it would be that analogy. You know, David Kerslake was a very, very special wide right defender. Very, very special player. Charlie Henry, for me, was it was funny because Charlie Henry really went sort of pop for me the season before I started really following the club. And and I remember my, I think we talked a bit before about my my career in media and you know people sort of trying to sell things a bit hard to you. And now that can kind of be counterproductive. And I think um, my uncle was really pushing swindon hard <laughs> in that <laughs> era but i do remember charlie henry's name coming up all the time as somebody that was scoring goals and uh, and he, he just seems to have this recognizable kind of cheeky chappy name charlie henry i thought he sounds like a bit of a boy um and then i remember that the one that then really stuck in my memory it was the first swindon goal i can remember seeing on selley when he scored that kind of fergie time set mm. that forced the replay in the playoffs and And that, for me, really kind of piqued my interest because I didn't really I remember not having that particular game shoved down my throat. I think my uncle had kind of in his head had thought, we're not going to we're not going to do this. It's not going to happen. And um, obviously, the circumstances of that goal, you can argue, possibly turn the fortunes of the club. Because I I sometimes wonder if, if Charlie Henry hadn't scored that screamer and if we hadn't then gone on to beat Gillingham at Sellers Park, what? would have happened would we have ever really would we have gone on that wonderful journey of our dealers you know would we have lost macari in different circumstances would we have ended up getting glen hoddle so it's a real pivotal goal and for me that kind of justifies Charlie's place on the bench you know anyone that can have an impact on a game scoring goals from distance and and also he was for he was massively popular with the fans and he he was one of those lads that definitely had Swindon running through his veins and and had that connection you know there were even when he was having an off day you would you would always hear the fans chanting his name he just seemed to curry favour with the Swindon fans and at that at that age that was good enough for me
0: yeah Charlie is a bit of an enigma for me because I went to my first game the following year from when he left so he left in 89 and I started going from 90 onwards and my dad was a fan of Charlie Henry when he's uh, sort of trying to entertain us on car journeys he'd do the Charlie Henry chant and and just talk about how great was that goal and things like that but I never saw him play. What I love about his career at Swindon, he's the epitome of the eighties because he joined when we're on our knees in in the early eighties as as a a junior, and then he goes all the way to eighty nine when we're on the brink of greatness,
2: and it's it it must
0: have been a hell of a journey for him.
2: Yeah, I I think it really was. And sadly for me, he was one of those guys that once he left the club, you know, he didn't really do much else after leaving us, really, you know. But again, I think maybe that was. He would probably have had a higher profile if he'd been a more modern era player, because I think the lower leagues are easier to track these days. You know, the particularly things like the BBC's coverage—you're only one click away from a pretty substantial amount of content. I think back then, once you kind of move on, didn't he move on to Aldershot or something like that? Yeah. Um, he just sort of—he just seemed to sort of disappear off into the ether, and then—and then I remember feeling really quite sad when I found out that he was you know working in a local car plant and it to me it felt like oh how the might have fallen but poor old Charlie was probably you know happy as a pig in the proverbial you know <laughs> he, he probably had a wonderful job and a wonderful career but I just for me remember thinking oh we should be making more of Charlie Henry you know he, he should be a little bit more around the club and I mean that that's a whole different conversation about how we've embraced sort of some of these legends over the that's years really but really. Yeah, Yeah, I I think that, you know, Charlie, for me, when I think back to that particular era, he's a real standout player. And like I said, that goal, I think, is pivotal in terms of the kind of golden era that I then went on to enjoy as a town fan, albeit a long distance one.
0: Let's do a couple of midfielders (laughs) now. The first two midfielders with a combined total of appearances of eight and two goals. They're they're Ozzy Ardiles and James Milner.
2: Right, so there's a reason for Ozzy. I, I just needed to spend a bit of time talking about him when he when he came to the club. I remember being uh, to me, it was like rubbing Savlon into a uh, into an awful wound. Um, losing Lou in the circumstances that we had, and I had such faith and such a, a love for Lou Macari, Um It it was like, well, where do we go from here? And again, if you imagine, obviously, the world is a very different place in terms of media coverage and things like that. And I just kind of thought. You know, are we going to end up appointing, uh, you know, a you know a John Trollope or someone like that? Which, to me, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with John Trollope. John Trollope's an absolute legend. But at that time, as a young football fan in London, with all the baggage I was carrying, you know, the issues that I had at school and things like that, I really wanted a statement appointment. And boy, did they deliver it. Um, it was such a shame, really, that when Aussie came along, his kind of better playing days were behind him. Because I actually remember thinking, you know, at that level he should be a class above, even at that age, you know. He he should hopefully be able to sit deep, maybe in front of the back four, and just give it simple, which really was, you know, a kind of key part of Aussie's game. So Aussie's made my bench, mainly because I kind of, you know... He's just universally popular. You won't find a player with a bad word to say about Aussie. You won't find a fan with a bad word to say about Aussie. And that's not just in the UK. That's abroad as well. As, as a player, yeah, clearly he realised that, you know, his time was up and that if things were going to work out for him, he needed to just be in the dugout. And and obviously, credit to him, he's done that. And, and look what happened to us. But Aussie was just... He's he's one of the few people from that era that I never ever had a chance to meet, and it's one of my biggest regrets.
0: It's just it's just crazy. I'm just thinking there, and oh my goodness, yeah, for a bit of time with a uh, with, with Ozzy Adidas, it's just like. I'm a Swindon Town fan whose club finished mid-table in the fourth tier and the first manager of my time supporting Swindon was Aussie Adina's
1: (laughs) World
2: Cup winner. (laughs) Well, see, but there's so much that comes with that selection of Aussie. Because one of the things that I absolutely remember from the, the Sunderland game was just people bringing in black bin liners full of ticker tape and and I remember when we've emerged it literally I couldn't see the pitch the sky was just full of paper and obviously that was a homage to his you know his Argentinian roots and the whole ticker tape culture mm. in football over in Argentina and and, and I I do remember after the games I, I felt about six inches taller because I stood on so much paper under my feet but he he just invoked a certain spirit amongst town fans, a certain positivity. I mentioned earlier in the pod about, you know, sometimes our, our supporters can be you know, really, really prickly. And I remember that particular era. He just seemed to introduce a certain, it was, it was all right to be nice. You know, winners can be nice and, and you, you know, you don't have to sort of take someone out across the knees in order to get the fans going. He, he, he took a, a team that were unbelievably fit and, and undeniably winners and it was like, you know, it's all right to get the ball down and and play the game and 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 play it with a passion. And it's all right for fans to be passionate, but he got them doing it in a in a in a way that was just like nothing else going on in the UK at the time. And 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 again, I remember the county ground with ticket tape receptions, just feeling so special. But that Sunderland game when we when the players emerged onto the pitch, that was magical, you know. And again, I I, I really do hold Aussie kind of largely responsible for that kind of sense of. Of sort of passion and that that subtle change in direction that that feeling that you know this I mean we, it, it just felt like we were it, it, it he taken a I don't know I'm trying to think of a, a, a car analogy here it would taken a bit of a, a rusty Subaru Impreza and gave it a really good polish and suddenly we were this kind of you know it was like we were a top end sort of you know sports car that you know could rev its engine proudly it was just it was a wonderful time so he makes my bench because I just think he would have such a positive impact all over. So in the stands, in the dressing room, on the style of play, probably be, he wouldn't be the main man in terms of the managerial position, but I think he would certainly end up you know, being like a director of football type figure. But he could easily pull the boots on and I still think he could have done a job. So we'll go from a nice World Cup winner to an allegedly boring Champions League winner with James Milner. Right. So James Milner makes my bench. It'll probably surprise a few people, but James Milner was one of these lads that we should never have signed in mm. terms of his ability in that period of his career. Obviously he was having a terrible time. Oh, sorry. Peter Reed was having a terrible time at Leeds at the time and Leeds were, were in the, in the midst of financial implosion. And it seemed that Reed sent him out to come and play for his mate, Andy King, purely to sort of toughen him up a bit. That was the feeling i got. And the thing that really struck me about James Milner was from day one he wholly committed to Swindon Town and um, I remember a piece he did with us at Four four two where completely unprompted he talked about his time at Swindon being a real career high for him and and I have absolutely no doubt about his sincerity i, I, I don 't know if you remember Rich, but his final game, he and Jarrell Eiffel were on loan and they did a. They were so well thought of after their loan spells that the pair of them did a lap of honour together, yeah. and it was like mid-season, if I recall, or sort of October. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And but they did this lap of honour, and James Milner got a standing ovation because. He, you know, the way he engaged with fans in and around the club, the way he engaged with fans outside the stadium, the people behind the scenes spoke so highly of this young lad. And obviously, he was playing up top, if I recall. And in that particular game, I think he scored a, an absolutely fantastic header. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was some talk about, you know, could a deal be done to kind of keep him there for the season? But he was only ever going to be a kind of yeah, a fleeting memory for us. But oh, it was such a sweet memory. He oozed class. I remember he had loads of pace he had it's just a brilliant footballing brain and just didn't come across as being boring at all he was um i thought you know for a lad to drop down from the first team at leeds to come and play for us and play like he, he literally felt like you'd taken him from the first team of a premier league club and put him straight into our team and he played like it as well he, he was a wonderful player to watch absolutely wonderful and, and funny enough it was for me it was a bit of a toss up between him. And I also really enjoyed Michael Carrick's time at the club mm. when he joined us from West Ham. But Milner got it for me because Carrick didn't leave with standing ovation. You know, Milner did. Um, Milner was a very special player. And if you look at the longevity he's enjoyed in his career um, and, you know, even down to little things like more recently, he's kind of, he's become really self-effacing with his humour on Twitter and kind of really enjoys the boring James Milner sort of profile. He's sort of, You know, Some players, I think, would have just crumbled under that or found that quite hard to live with, but he's really embraced it with a grin. I I think it's really important on my bench. We've always had a rich history of loan players at the county ground, so I wanted a loan player on our bench that kind of typified success in the loan market for Swindon Town, and for me, James Milner typifies that.
0: We've also had a good record of nice bits of business every now and again, and this next one was a lovely bit of uh, work from Glenn Hoddle when he brought the next player from West Ham for nothing uh, 92 to 97 199 games it's King Kevin Horlock
2: yeah Kevin Horlock who would have thought it that skinny little lad that he signed from West Ham who was supposedly a half decent left back would turn into a free scoring centre midfielder or, or wide left midfielder that just had bags of ability it, it's quite funny because he's he's supposedly a real character off the pitch that for me didn't really shine through back then what really shone through for me was the fact that here was a lad that had clearly been brilliantly well developed you know at the West Ham academy had been brought up the West Ham way played football the right way joined Swindon at a time where you know he it obviously our, our kind of you know the Leicester game came around a bit too quick for him you know that season it kind of he was sort of around the periphery, much like a kind of, of of a Wayne O'Sullivan or an Andy Thompson. But boy, when he broke into the team, he really took his chance. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, as you say, sign him on a on a free transfer. And then we him for about one point seven million quid, you know, and then he's gone on to have an incredible career at Manchester City. Lots of caps for Northern Ireland and by all accounts, a thoroughly nice guy. One of those lads that obviously we we like to invite old players back to the club from time to time and the odd sort of charity game and whatnot. And he's one of those sort of presences that you sort of hope would turn up more than he does. You know, you'd like to think that, you know, he's whilst not quite having legendary status... You know, he would, you know, he would still inspire sort of, you know, a lot of positivity from fans. But yeah, I mean, wonderful left boot, um, scored some fantastic goals, um, linking up play in the midfield. Yeah, driving presence in terms of levels of fitness. I thought Kevin Horlock was a wonderful player.
0: We've got some legends up front on your bench, though. Uh, Jimmy Quinn and Steve White.
2: Yes, I mean, obviously Jimmy Jimmy Quinn was right at the start of my tenure as a Swindon fan and um, I just remember him being this, I mean, it's interesting because from a family point of view, I have a lot of family that live in Northern Ireland, so, you know, Northern Ireland as a national team is always a team that I keep half an eye on and Jimmy Jimmy Quinn is just, you know, an absolute legend north of the border, you know, just everything you expect to get from, you know, a a powerful Ulsterman centre forward, you know, towering headers, decent with his feet, and the thing that, again, this is this then leapfrogs an entire career of absolute wonder. But I never forget Charlton the way Jimmy Quinn with, um, you know, forty on the back of his shirt. <laughs> you know, Coming out of retirement because he just couldn't help himself. He just wanted to play, and at the time we had issues up top. We weren't scoring enough goals, and I still remember thinking, Do "You know what? He's still half decent." And every now and again, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Rich. If you're a, a, an individual that jumps on a, a certain online auction site, but that <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Quinn forty shirt, every now and again pops up with a ridiculous price tag attached to it, and I've come close so many times to buying it. Um, He's, um, yeah, J- Jimmy Quinn, for me, scored an awful lot of goals. I mean, there was a period in time, I think, where he held the post-war post goal-scored record in the league, I think. He inevitably, as a young kid, you kind of, you know, you are attracted to the shiny baubles on the tree. In football terms, that's people that score lots of goals. Mm. And, yeah, Jimmy Quinn, for me, was scoring lots of goals for Swindon Town. And he was on the tips of most people's tongues when I would be in and around certain places in Swindon with my family, you'd always hear people saying this, that and the other about Jimmy Quinn. And and obviously he got a decent move in the end for, at the time, quite a lot of cash. And then went on, continued to go on and have a great career, both as a player and a half decent career as a manager. Yeah, I think he was just fundamentally a player, wasn't he? he? He never really delivered in managerial terms what he delivered on the pitch. But I kind of thought that he would end up being a bit of a legend. But maybe at the same token, I think he's, yeah, you know, there are there are lots of Premier League Footballers, I think that a lot's expected from them from managerial perspective. It doesn't quite happen. You think of people like Roy Keane. um, You know, think of the Fergie era of players that come through Man United. Jimmy Quinn's like a Swindon Town version of that for me. You know, it should have worked for him. It should have been brilliant for him, but for whatever reason, it just never quite happened. That that makes me feel quite sad thinking back.
0: Your final centre forward, Steve White, of course.
2: Ah, yeah. I mean, when we go through my team, you know, he literally was a hair's breadth away from making my starting eleven chalky because he and Duncan Shearer were the most formidable strike partnership during my time as a town fan. They were utterly awesome. I mean that that's um, the year we beat Sunderland at Wembley. I think they both weighed in with about fifty two or fifty five goals between them, maybe more. They were they were they were utterly unstoppable as a pairing. You had the big, powerful sort of presence in Shearer, and then the wiry kind of fox in the box in Steve White. And um, again, like I go back to you know the Gillingham game. And when I talked about Charlie Henry, obviously, we then went to Sellers Park and Chalky scored two goals that, again, maybe set us off on a, you know, on a a trajectory that we wouldn't have necessarily gone on if we hadn't won that game. And just Steve White's dad, much like sort of Charlie Austin further down the line, Steve White just had this incredible knack of being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely clinical finisher, utterly ruthless. And the circumstances were brilliant as well. You know, signing him on a free transfer, one of the greatest, if not the greatest free transfers of all time. And when you look at goals scored for a player signed on a free, you know, he was kind of, I remember thinking, yeah, he was sort of a, this is going to sound quite harsh, but he was a bit of an ugly footballer in that he wasn't, he wasn't glamorous. He wasn't super fast. He was kind of quick over a few yards, which obviously all great strikers need to be. But he was more, I remember thinking he was more nippy and he was very clever. He literally was that fox in the box cliche. Very, very wily. And the fact that, you know, his game relied on those sort of attributes probably led to him having the longevity in his career that he enjoyed. I mean, I think when he hung up his boots, he was nearly 40. And I think he was at Cardiff before obviously he's gone off into non-leagues. But you know for for me i'm not i would love to have put him in the starting lineup but obviously he proved on the biggest of stages you can come off the bench and you can transform the trajectory of a football club you know he did it as a starter against gillingham but then to come off the bench as he did against wembley and be fouled in such a ridiculous fashion as he was hacked down in his prime as he was rounding the keeper just as he was about to gloriously slide home the winner no doubt there's you know there's no doubt that that was a foul in my book and um he uh, yeah i I think that that alone kind of gives him legendary status coming off coming off of my bench tom Jones.
0: the 11 now then so in goal he's been in the uh, he's been nominated previously probably the greatest goalkeeper to play for Swindon just over 500 appearances player of the year in 87 97 and 98 Fraser Digby?
2: You know what people say don't ever meet your heroes and more often than not in my time in football I mean I was lucky to meet pretty much any every footballer you kind of want to mention particularly like UK based and that sort of statement rings true with a lot of my heroes Um, I won't mention names because it wouldn't be right and proper but I will mention names when it comes to meeting your heroes Fraser was an absolute and remains an absolute hero of mine Fraser on and off the pitch is a You know, was and indeed continues to be a true gentleman. I remember back then, like I said, he was in goal my very, very first game. And I remember as an aspiring young goalkeeper being dumbstruck by this like kind of wiry, super slick looking, very handsome lad that we'd signed from Man U. And he was brilliant. Shot stopping, you know, the way he worked his angles, the way he commanded his back four. You know, he just, he, if the team was a balloon, Fraser was the one that blew the air into it. You know, his presence at the back, you knew you weren't going to leak a lot of goals with him in goal. That As a last line of defence, he would invariably get us out of the brown stuff. And the team was kind of built on, a lot. I honestly believe the team was kind of built from there. I, I could sit and wax lyrical about save after save after save. I think you, just in stats alone, you've nailed the reason why Fraser's there. You couldn't put anyone else in there. I've never seen Peter Downsborough play, so I can't talk to you about Peter Downsborough. And the only goalkeeper in my lifetime that's come anywhere near close to Fraser is Wes. And yet Fodderingham was only with us for, you know, really if you, yeah, a handful of seasons. F- Fodderingham was wonderful. But I think the 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 thing that really nails Fraser's place for me. I haven't got a lot of time for the modern day footballer. It has to be said because I think longevity doesn't really play a role in their lives now because the opportunities to move up the leagues and earn money, kind of is 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 there for all to see. You can't really fault lads for that because you're talking about their livelihoods and the futures of their families and those temptations are immense. But as a fan, speaking from the sort of terraces or the seats as they are now. It's very, very hard to latch on to players and develop that that real feeling of affinity and love. And I've had conversations with with Fraser um in recent years where we've talked about that and he's expressed to me, you know, the importance of um, you know, being in and around Swindon and he understands and feels that status that he he's managed to achieve with Swindon fans. And he's very, very proud of being part of a golden era for Swindon and actually some of the kind of more trying years as well. You know, he was somebody that had opportunities to leave Swindon. there were big money moves muted at West Ham, um, you know, when Lou Macari left and he, he chose not to leave and chose to remain at Swindon and actually carve out a, um, an iconic status that Obviously, he maintains to this day. And I think that, you know, I wish people, if they've not had the opportunity to meet him, you need to really. And because he's always up for talking about, you know, Swindon and his time at Swindon. Um, and he talks about it with such passion and enthusiasm. Even, you know, now many, many years after his kind of time at the club has come to an end, you know, he's still literally cut him open and he bleeds the red and white at Swindon Town. Whilst he's still very passionate about his, you know, his, his Man United roots you know, obviously Swindon's, his kind of, you know, spiritual footballing home. And, yeah, as a young goalkeeper, it ticked all the boxes for me as as a fan that wanted to have an affinity with someone out on the pitch that really felt our pain. I felt Fraser kind of exhibited that as somebody that transver- transversed all these various eras, you know, from Macari to Hoddle, uh, sorry, to Ardiles, to Hoddle, to Gorman, you know, to McMahon. He was there throughout that whole era. Yeah, very, very special player uh, for me. Very, very special player. An absolute pin-up hero for me.
0: One of the few players where they've been on this on this podcast and I felt genuinely nervous while dialing in. And, I mean, this is a guy, when I spoke to him, he's very modest, I, th- I found, um, when I was talking to him about his career. But because of the nature of his, his career now, he probably had done eight, 12-hour shifts and he spoke to me for an hour plus and that is the sort of stuff that goes such a long way um, and again it's probably harks back to what you were saying about that because he acknowledges people like him people like Sam Parkin they don't downplay how well they they are by Swindon supporters
2: yeah absolutely right and I, I, I think it's lovely that you know that Fraser uses his kind of business acumen now to do various bits in the background for the club in terms of you know whether that's identifying areas for us to move to for training grounds or ground development things like that I think there will always be a link between like a tangible link between the club and Fraser I, I sometimes you know wonder whether he has been able to achieve the kind of recognition that he deserves in terms of how the club position him because for somebody that's done as much as he has for our club i think there could be a more front of shop ambassadorial role for someone like fraser um you know even if it is somebody that is just there engaging with fans week by week by week you know and and actually being remunerated for that i I think for me the club misses a trick with certain lads like fraser i'm sure the club has its reasons but you know for me as a fan i want to see the fraser digby's you know I want to see the Fitzroy Simpsons I want to see the Steve Foley's I want to see the Ross McLarens and I want to see them on a regular basis and I want to see them doing things around the club if you go to Man United for example you often see people like Frank Stapleton you know you know people like that you know you would see them in and around the club you know club legends that still have a certain cachet with the supporters you know for me we don't make enough out of Fraser as a as a as a, as a football club you know and You know, bearing in mind, you know, the Don has got a stand named after him. Um, I know that we have, you know, a bar named after Fraser. But um, for me, you know, the guy deserves a statue. He's an absolute legend for me.
0: Number two, defender, 1984 to 1987. I would say a largely forgotten in modern times, 122 appearances
2: and six goals.
0: It's Chris Ramsey.
2: I loved Rambo. I loved Rambo from the day I set eyes on him. Um, he he was just fleet-footed, bombing up and down. For me, he was he was all action. And again, he—I mean, I was very very young, remember? But you know, this guy with this sort of wonderful nickname—that you know it's probably a nickname that maybe just my uncle gave him. I don't even remember if the fans actually all called him it. But in my household, this guy was known as Rambo. He was all action, non-stop, absolutely. You know brilliant football brain on him, um, and like you said, largely forgotten figure, I remember he was very present in my first game. I remember him really catching the eye amongst alongside Fraser, and I just remember thinking, wow, what a player we've got on our you know on our on our books here you know this this guy really he had been heavily sold to me as a player to watch out for by my uncle, and uh, yeah, and he didn't disappoint. It was, it's really interesting. He's never really been given an opportunity to get involved with our club on a management or coaching level. I appreciate he's kind of been a bit further up the up the ladder if you t- think about some of the clubs he's been involved in in recent years. I remember there was the during the Tim Sherwood era, you would invariably see Ramsey and Les Ferdinand in the director's box and you would often sort of think to yourself, do you know what, I wonder at some point is he going to get an opportunity to come back to the club? I, I didn't ever feel that Chris was part of necessarily the fabric of the club in that respect, in terms of oh, he would he would be a shoe in and a very popular choice amongst the fans. But I certainly think if he was given the opportunity to manage, that would certainly give him a bit of a foot up. He's never really somebody that kind of puts his hat in the ring, though. You know, whenever there's a managerial vacancy, you know, you never really see him super high up in the odds. So I don't know whether he really wants it. And then obviously he had his managerial opportunity a couple of years ago. Didn't really work out for him. But um, yeah, he's he's someone that, you know, for me, very, very early kind of super energetic Um, all action player it would have been so easy for me to just shoot David Kerslake in at right back but I kind of wanted an option that again transversed a few eras. so for me Ramsey just shaded Kerslake
0: I think in modern terms Ramsey and it was Rambo uh, across the board he's only really majorly known for the booking (laughs) the booking the booking and for those who don't know do you want to go no, go on. You go. <laughs> well, during a rather comfortable victory um, while playing for Swindon, he trapped the ball uh, and you know had the ball under his foot and proceeded to roll up his socks. Um, nonchalantly,
2: which the referee took exception to and booked him for it, can you imagine doing that now i mean there's George best in his pomp apparently <laughs> his party trick was a similar story. get the ball under control bring the bring the defender in nice and close and play a one two off his shins i mean, it's, it's a, it's along those it 's along that sort of line isn 't it mm. but again, you know talk about football in brain you know the ability you know in a, as a professional footballer. Your ability to put your foot on the ball and have that time, the speed of thought to do that is not to be underestimated. A few years ago, you you might recall, there was a charity game at the county grounds where Paolo raised a load of money for the Wiltshire Air Ambulance. I was very, very lucky to get invited along and um, play the second half as Fraser's replacement. And the thing that struck me was the speed of which these guys could move a ball around, even at the latter, you know, I mean, you're talking about guys that were well into their 30s. I remember Paul Bowden in particular just fizzing these balls around. And it was quite funny because in the warm-up, I remember people zinging the balls into me and thinking, oh, this ain't too bad. It actually helps that the balls are traveling at pace and I can read it well and all of this jazz. But when I came out in the second half and they were playing really up-tempo stuff, I just could not believe the speed of, of thought required to operate. And yet the strangest thing was when you watch the highlights reel of that game back, it's kind of played at a snail's pace. So go back to that Ramsey booking and think about the speed of thought it would have taken to take liberties quite like that. To just literally, right, there you go, ball underfoot, right, roll my socks up now and then still probably take the player on a play a one-two. It doesn't only show cheek, it shows immense speed of thought. Um, And again, if you think about his footballing brain and look at what he's gone on to do as a coach, I think, you know, hats off to him.
0: Number three, your left back, another friend of the pod and another bona fide Swindon legend mentioned. Just a moment there. Two spells, almost 300 appearances in the league, 297, I believe, 40 goals. It's Paul Zippy Bowden.
2: Yeah, I mean, how can you not put anyone other than... I mean, you've got to go Bowden at left back. You have to, for so many reasons. Goals, 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 goals. Decent levels of assists. Loads of mobility down the left flank. The the penalty at Leicester, real cool head, slams it home. We're up. Happy days. But I think the other thing I mentioned, you know, along the lines of Fraser, never meet your heroes. I remember, I think it was like about the third play on the pitch event I I signed up for. and, And Paul was managing one of the teams. And I just being just dumbstruck at how normal he was. And how approachable he was. And again, how incredibly proud he was to have scored that goal. You, you know, you there are certain players you meet. And I was I was lucky enough a few years ago to meet Gary Lineker. And I remember I, I had an opportunity to talk to him about 1990 in Italy. And he just seemed to be a bit bored. Like, well, I've answered this question about a million times. Why do I want what, to? What, do I really have to do this again? And so I kind of, the first time I met Bowden, I remember thinking... The last thing I'm going to want to do is talk to him about Wembley because he's probably had that conversation with Swindon fans a million times over. And what really struck me was he was just still so full of enthusiasm and he, he dissected that penalty literally millisecond by millisecond for me and created this most incredible montage in my head of his memories and then and what that meant to him and, and what that means in terms of his status moving forward. And, you know, he he certainly... You know, he's never taken his time at the club for granted. Obviously, he had a, a relatively high-profile high falling out with a, a very high-profile manager of ours that led to him leaving the club um, in circumstances that probably the club and he would have, I think, well, certainly in time, I think, look back and think, oh, wouldn't that have been better if it had been handled slightly differently? But, you know, Paul is just the, just the epitome of a class act. Always got time to talk to fans, but equally on the pitch, just utterly brilliant player i actually thought he came back in his second spell i thought it'd be a little bit like kerslake mark II when paul first came back but i actually thought he was a better player when he came and he and he continued to serve us much again like fraser transversed a number of years it was no surprise to me that when he did the pod with you there was there were a number of episodes because he's got such a big story and an interesting story to tell and obviously the family have got that lineage moving forward with Billy doing so well in his career as well. So, um, yeah, genuinely lovely guy. And again, name me a better town left back. I would possibly, I considered Phil King. And I know every town fan out there would have considered Jason Drysdale. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's there's no competition for me. Paul Bowden all day long.
0: Let's go with the centre-backs. So we'll skip four and go to number five. Wow. I mean, what can you say? 1985, 1993... 414 appearances, 21 goals.
2: Colin Calderwood. Yeah, the fridge was unbelievable. I I mentioned, I've already mentioned that word Rolls-Royce when I was talking about David Kerslake. And for me, Calderwood just as a centre-back just purred. You know, he was a little bit like Swindon Town's Bobby Moore. When you listen to the way that people talk about how Bobby Moore could read a game, you know, his speed of thought, his interceptions, his position, his positioning. His leadership skills, you know, Colin Calderwood to me was like Swindon Town's Bobby Moore. You know, he, he wasn't the biggest as a centre-back, but he wasn't small. You know, he had a really good leap on him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, after the thing that this is what was my bugbear with with Colin was that I thought he was so good, but he needed that move onto Tottenham before actually the international sort of scene took him seriously. And for me, that was a travesty because Colin actually, I believe, hand on heart, he played his best football at Swindon. There are some Tottenham fans that might argue with that. I think he polarised his opinion amongst some fans at Spurs and obviously latterly in his career he he played in some slightly unusual positions at Forest and I think where he was played in centre mid in some games but for me he was the he was just the you you thought about ever presence at the back for Swindon like you know just shoe in certain positions and Colin Calderwood at centre back I mean yeah he's he just earns his spot the 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 thing that and i've often I've often discussed this with with fraser actually who i I remain sort of friends with moving forward but I've often talked about you know why Colin hasn't come back as a manager at some point and you know because for me there's unfinished business for him at swindon he's i i still believe despite the fact that we've got a couple of generations of fans now that have you know have sort of passed through the turnstiles since his playing days. I still think he's got such resonance with the Swindon supporter base and um I think he if you look at the job he did at Cambridge last year it was a great job and and actually there's been other clubs in his career as a manager he's done a really good job so I would like to think that Colin would see Swindon as his spiritual home and I I often wonder you know why he's not come back why that's never quite happened and it's a great source of frustration for me because when I think of leadership and Swindon I put him, I put him up there straight away. You know, I I immediately think, well, no brainer for me. He was, he should have been like somebody that, you know, took advantage of his time learning under Makari, you know, learning under, um, Hoddle learning under Ardiles. So many, you know, different opportunities at our club, you know, and, and having lifted so many trophies at our club, I would have thought he would have just at some point been a no brainer appointment. And, at certain times for example when we appointed Lingy I remember thinking that's great and I love Lingy but surely it can't be that hard to attract with with Swindon but it just seems like the footballing gods don't want that to happen and for me that's a real source of, uh, of disappointment
0: number
2: six There's
0: not much more I can say about this one because he is my absolute hero 91 to 96 259 games 33 goals is oosh
2: Sean Taylor Ooh, Sean Taylor. Ooh, Sean Taylor. Just, yeah, I mean... I, I remember do you remember I, I mentioned earlier in the pod about that game against Real Sociedad and I just remember thinking who is this absolute meathead we've signed at the back here with this gum shield in that literally he just sounded like a gorilla just grunting at everybody in this really aggressive fashion I was like my god this guy's a monster but I mean I, I you know I was a big fan of the late John Gittins you know I love that sort of rough sort of up and at central defender that would literally run through brick walls and um, I didn't really know much about Taylor when we signed him obviously we paid decent Money, I think he's a couple of hundred grand from Exeter, um, but he, I don't think he arrived with any kind of real expectations. And um, if we didn't have any, I remember that Sochi that game opened my eyes. The crunch, a couple of crunching headers and a couple of massive tackles, and just barking at players, like young players barking guidance, organising them, getting them all set up the way he wanted it set up. I think it would have been a goalkeeper's dream because high balls into the box, the pressures on the keeper, particularly in around the six-yard box, to, you know, get something on it. And I think, you know, probably Fraser probably could have stayed on his line after the time we had um, Sean at the back because just a tower of strength. And... um, I mean, up the other end, devastating from set pieces. I mean, I remember one absolute. I remember it being described as a ramrod header on an end-of-season VHS goals roundup against Wolves at Molineux. I think it was absolute smasher of a header, and that was that was kind of meat and potatoes for Sean Taylor. You know, his goals input for us over the years was was truly impressive. Another player like Colin that. I, I hoped one day he would find his way back to the county ground but circumstances have conspired against it happening for whatever reason you know he seems to have a real foothold you know down in the, the far southwest that kind of I don't know whether that he just feels that you know Swindon again is is just not to be for him but harbour ambitions I've, I've seen him behind the scenes a couple of times where he's either been there scouting or and, and again just loved by fans you know always got time to stop and talk to people always got that massive Sean Taylor smile on his face there's that lovely picture of him post post winning the playoffs there's him Bodin Hoddle and Maskell and he's got that cheeky grin on his face holding the trophy in one hand and every time you see him behind the scenes at Swindon he just has that same grin on his face you know I, I feel that he's got the, the club in his heart but it's never, it's just never happened, you know, in terms of him coming back as a coach. But again, he's a player that straight away you can imagine, or you know, the old Ooh, Sean Taylor song coming out, whether he was in the, the dugout as a coach or, you know, just in and around the club, universally popular. Uh, and another player that's not made the, you know, that that is not made enough of, in my view.
0: Let's go back to number four now. It's a sweeper. And if I say sweeper, everyone's gone. Well, of course it is. 91 to 93. 75 appearances, three goals. The first great player that I ever saw play for Swindon is Glenn Hoddle.
2: Yeah. So, Glenn Hoddle, I had a real kind of love affair with Glenn Hoddle and Glenn Hoddle's career. Um, I mentioned right at the start of the pod, my first ever game was Tottenham. And I did have a bit of a soft spot for Spurs when I first started falling in love with the game. Mainly, I seem to remember because they had a bit of a funny name. Um, Tottenham Hotspur, for me, just invoked these sort of romantic images that I still can't probably explain to you properly other than I was a daft kid that thought that sticks out a bit as, as different. But they also had Hoddle and Waddle playing for them, which again, as a young kid, it, it just sort of caught my attention. And obviously, having then started to, you know, be given presents by a family that were keen as mustard for me to be a Spurs fan, they were invariably VHS videos of Tottenham in the 80s, Hoddle pulling the strings. So you can imagine my delight when we've appointed him as as manager, you know, arguably as an outfield player my my biggest hero in football. I, I loved the fact that he was a bit maverick, not in a in a dirty sense, although there were a couple of funny missed challenges at his time at Swindon, but just that he sort of did it his way. He had a very he was a real visionary and he did it his way and he wouldn't accept any other vision. And I think at Swindon he obviously had come in and said, Look, I'm gonna do it like this and I want to be left alone to do it like this. And we all saw the results. I think we were probably a little bit over reliant on him in a sense that obviously when he lost, when he left Terry Fenwick a replacement he was not and um, what a huge hole to fill but I think it says a huge amount about his impact on the team as a player and on the club in terms of um, a figurehead incredibly elegant on the ball you know nobody could ping a pass like Glenn Hoddle and, and the thing that always got me about Glenn was just pure theatre only Glenn Hoddle would score a rocket in the first game of the season and then a peach in his own backyard at Wembley on the last game of the season. He just, he had that, you know, when he left Tottenham, uh, for those that haven't seen it, it's worth having a look on YouTube. His last ever goal at White Hart Lane against Oxford when he runs the length of the pitch, basically knocks the ball between two centre aisles, puts Peter Hucker on his backside and then rolls it in nonchalantly and bursts into tears and smiles Um, pure theatre. And that was what kind of Hoddle brought to the fore for me there was you know the glamour element of it, the style element of it, and my good friend Nick judd will will enthusi- will enthuse even more about you know Glenn's time at the club, you know for various sort of stories Nick's got um, of of being involved and having contact with Glenn Hoddle. He was just somebody that captured your imagination, and I think as town fans that have got memories of him playing, I think we need to hold on to those because a player of of his type comes around once or twice in a lifetime. And I don't think we've we've had that level of football ability in a red shirt, you know, arguably. You can talk about Don Rogers prior. I never saw Don play the video in, in DVDs and videos he looks incredible. I, I just think in terms of a graceful player, with everything he everything that he did with a ball at his feet, yeah, just intoxicating watching Glenn Hoddle. Yeah, I, I mean, you can't not put him in there. I appreciate this team is starting to look like a pretty sort of predictable, but, you know, he, he's he got to be in there. And and the thing is, you've only got to talk the 6-4 Birmingham game, really. If there's any debate about Glenn Oddle being in there, stick him in at sweeper, 4-1 down at halftime, move him up into midfield, we win the game 6-4, and he runs the show. And, you know, and don't forget, we were only one division off the top flight, you know, to have that dramatic an impact on a game when he wanted to get a bit between his teeth, he could transform football matches It is, you know, just a dream. Yeah, I've still got, you know, a Hoddle for Swindon shirt. Just I mean, it's it's prize possession for me. He's an absolute legend. Bearing in mind, he wasn't actually at the club that long. You know, for me to be able to wax lyrical like this about somebody that has passed through our club that I absolutely adore and actually left in the fashion that he did and not really hold that much bitterness towards him, you know, I think speaks volumes.
0: You must have watched a lot of Swindon in recent times because your midfield is packed with centre midfielders. We'll start with the first one. 1990 to 1993, 143 appearances, uh, 18 goals. Lots more, I think, that he's given credit for, to be honest. He seemed to have... Maybe it's because I was going, uh, seeing him during the end of his Swindon career. It's Mickey Hazard.
2: Yeah, Mickey Hazard. Just mercurial, low centre of gravity. Brilliant on the ball. The, the funny thing about it was that it was anyone that knew anything about Tottenham, there was always this feeling that Hoddle and Hazard couldn't play together, that they were too powder puffed to play alongside each other. And the system that we had at Swindon just blew that theory right out the water. I mean, he, he came to us very late in his career. Uh, well, not very late, that's a bit harsh. But I mean, he was in his early 30s, but he was, yeah, just that, that word mercurial you know, he'd get his foot on the ball. He would twist and turn. He would not pass out wide. He would open opportunities. He could thread through balls and he could score goals. He had an amazing ginger afro. He would argue that it was blonde. But um, yeah, I just, and he always had this big grin on his face. And whenever you heard him interview, you couldn't help but like him. And um, I mentioned that charity game we got involved in a few years back and Mickey was playing on my team. And in the changing room, he was just still the life and soul just going around to everybody, introducing himself, first name terms, not big time at all, very down to earth. Took me out in the warm-up before the game and was warming me up, pinging these perfect free kicks into the top corners and loving every single minute of it. He's Tottenham them through and through, but he has a very, very, very special place in his heart for Swindon Town. And another one of those individuals where you think to yourself, wouldn't it be great if we could get him more involved in the club? Because he's, he's a real football man and a thoroughly nice guy when you're in and around the sort of football fraternity and you mention Mickey Hazard's name, you tend to find there's not many people that kind of scowl or go, Oh, who's he? You know, he's a name that people know and he's a name that people admire. Um, And I, I just, I think he's a, he's an absolute gentleman on and off the pitch. Um, But yeah, I have very, very happy memories of, you know, particularly I thought Hoddle's um, sort of first full season, very, very happy memories of Hazard tinkering away midfield, linking up play, you know, I thought, you know, the number of times I saw him playing alongside Martin Ling, I thought, well, that can't work, but it just did. You know, they just passed the ball around the opposition with, with great ease. Yeah, big fan of Mickey Hazard. Next
0: up is somebody who's still or who is involved with the club yet again. 86 to 1990 was his career, and you have to wonder uh, how it would have panned out for him had Swindon got promoted in 1990. 136 appearances, 25 goals is
2: Adam McLaughlin. Oh, McLaughlin was an absolute machine. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the kind of relatively lucky goal at Wembley and that iconic celebration of him twisting round on his knees with his fist in the air. It's just, just literally burnt into my psyche. He, you know, obviously moving on for a million quid. Back then, that was a lot of money. But rightly so, it, a real driving force from midfield. Good eye for pass, but fantastic eye for goal. Um Obviously, the summer that we didn't go up, that we should have gone up, went on to the World Cup and played for the Republic of Ireland. Didn't quite work out for him at Southampton, but went on at a, a relatively controversial move, should we say, to Portsmouth. Did really, really well at Portsmouth. Really well regarded down there. And yeah, he's, he's someone I'm delighted is still connected with the club. And he's another one that if you ever get the opportunity to talk to Alan McLaughlin, you know, he's, he's, he is a, very much a Mr Swindon. Very passionate, about the, very passionate about the club and doing a great job with the youngsters as well at the moment. So um, yeah, Alan Mack, what a player. And again, bought in for buttons and sold for big money. So uh, yeah, served us really well over the years.
0: Next one's probably the Shock inclusion of the squad it's a current player after two loan spells he joined permanently in 2018 he won the player of the year award in 2019 his scoring record's quite good thanks to the penalty spot 22 in 70 games it's Michael Doughty
2: right the reason Doughty gets in my team hearts back to what I was saying about how I feel about the modern day footballer now Actually, Michael Doughty is a little bit of a red herring in that regard in that actually I think we were all aware that unfortunately um, due to his sort of, you know, late father's wealth and indeed his own business acumen, he's probably secure. Well, he is secure away from the game. And that probably enables him to take a slightly you know, sort of view football for a slightly different lens. Michael Doughty, for me, is a midfielder that not only gives his all on the pitch, but has just said the things that all football fans want to hear to enable us to dream these days, which is, you know, he sees a vision. He's bought into a vision. Now, I'm not naive enough to to believe there aren't clauses in the new contract that he's signed. But the fact that he sees a bigger picture that he acknowledges he's played the best football of his career so far at Swindon, that he has an affinity with our, with our fans that, you know, he, you saw last season that he was so keen to play. He was playing through the pain barrier, rushing back from injuries. He wanted to be out on the pitch. This is no comfortable millionaire. We've got preening himself in our midfield. This is a really hungry footballer that clearly has an awful lot of motivation for the game. But wants to be happy and wants to make people smile and wants to be part of a bigger picture at Swindon. And so for me, he's he's very much a kind of symbolic selection in this team because he's a bit of a throwback in terms of that Fraser Digby-esque attitude towards wanting to be part of something bigger, you know, wanting to leave his mark on a club. And I think that is something that a lot of lower league players could take a look at and go. Do you know, I could move elsewhere and I could end up sitting on the bench and picking up a big packet, but actually, is there something to be said in developing legendary status for further down the line? Rightly or wrongly, and there are flaws in that debate, I love the fact that Doughty has basically come out and said to us all this season, we can dream, you know, you guys can actually have a bit of faith. There are footballers out there that you can build not just a team around, but you can start to build a club around. And I hope that he hangs around for the longer haul and that he, be, he can become part of the foundation of the club moving forward there's there's a lot of exciting noises coming out of the club at the moment him being one of them and you know ultimately yeah if you go back to his his input on the fit on the pitch even when he's playing in teams that are woefully underperforming he's leading from the front and you've got to admire that scoring great goals making great runs playing great passes and playing with his heart and that gets me off my seat and that's why Michael Dowd is in my lineup
0: Let's finish with the forwards then. And the first one, 1988 to 1992. The heartbreaking statistic, just one more game, 199 appearances and 98 goals. I just need that rounded up. It's Duncan Shearer.
2: Oh, what a player Big Dunk was. What a player. Um, it, It just seemed like everything he touched, whether it went off his elbow, off his nose, whatever, it would end up in the back of the net. Centre halves were terrified of him. He had he had power in an abundance. He wasn't particularly slow. He was he was certainly mobile for a big unit. Um and just terrorised defences. I mean, his final season with us, he would have hit 50 goals, I've absolutely no doubt about it. He was another one that frustrated me, much like Calderwood, in that you know, Scotland didn't take a leap of faith with him when he was with us scoring loads of goals. It wasn't until we really pitched up at Aberdeen that they actually had a look at him. But um, yeah, Duncan Shearer was just goals, goals, goals. And, it's quite funny because he had a bit of a slow start, as I recall, and and we, I remember <laughs> my uncle giving him absolute pelters from the stands, saying, "What is this big lump?" We paid good money for him. I think we paid about three hundred and fifty grand for him, and um, was it from Huddersfield, if I recall? Mm-hmm. And he wasn't; he just didn't really look much of a footballer at first. He took a little while to settle settle in. Not quite as long as Fiorentin to settle in, but a similar kind of explosion of talent once it started going for him. You know, once he started scoring, he didn't stop. One, of, Ironically, one of my weirdest memories of, of Shearer was the Sunderland game when I seem to recall, I'm sure it was him, or was it? No, that might have been Chalky, actually, when so one of the two, I mean, they just seemed to both of them miss real guilt-edged chances at Wembley, and... I don't know whether they both froze or, or what, but I remember Chalky hitting the post with an open, actual open goal right in front of him when he tried to slide it across the line and Shearer missing one in similar circumstances and just thinking, blimey, like these goals, these guys can score goals for fun and on this carpet of a pitch, it has got to happen for them. But that day, it just didn't happen and he was largely anonymous, if I recall. But... Um, yeah brilliant player absolute brick out house of a centre forward and obviously Blackburn recognised that and absolutely did our knees by signing him in the fashion that they did as you say you know one more goal he would have gone and scored another 11 of no doubt
0: and finally the last player He came in on loan in 2007 he joined in 2008 and duly left in 2009 scoring a bucket ton of goals along the way 88 games 48 goals incredible Simon Cox
2: yeah you have got. I mean look look at our post-war goal scoring record you've got to put Coxie in there it was actually touch and go as I said earlier between this lad and Stevie White but Simon Cox White would have probably got it on longevity but Simon Cox was just dynamite all over the pitch I was so excited um, last season when there was talk of him actually coming back to Swindon quite big talk about him coming back to Swindon and it never quite happened I was really disappointed because I still think he's got so much to offer Cox was just very 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 busy very very dynamic for a little lad really put himself about and just yes yeah, scored goals by the bucket load in teams that struggled and also teams that actually did all right I think one of the again you know given the, the things I was doing in my work life, I, I had an opportunity to um, sit next to Simon at a, a gig at the Grosvenor after he'd left us, uh, the Grosvenor Hotel. So they often host these sort of, you know, posh um, football dues up in London for those that don't know, like the PFA Awards and the like. And by chance, I ended up being sat next to Simon at one of these awards dues by pure fluke. And again, people say, don't ever meet your heroes. He was a guy that... If, if Swindon as a club could have been on a slightly different trajectory, no doubt he would have stayed. A real, real passion for the club, real love for the club. I think it was a difficult time to be a player at that time in terms of the way the players were remunerated, You know the conditions that obviously they were playing under. It was a really, really difficult tenure. But he just, I mean, I think behind the scenes, by all accounts, he had a great rapport with all the coaching staff, great rapport with all the backroom staff. Real great respect for Swindon fans. And, you know, he he loves the fact that he is, you know, that there are images of him around the club. You know, despite a relatively short time at the club, he appreciates he's left a pretty indelible mark on our record books. And, and he you know, and loves the fact that when he, you know, when he gets to, on occasion, get back to the club, he still sees his face on montages and so on and so forth. Infectious character. Yeah, just, just again, it's goals, isn't it? Goals, goals, goals And I think he would work brilliantly off of Duncan Shearer Much like Steve White did I think if you had Shearer banging him in And you had White working you know, the spaces in and around him I think he would have just scored an absolute ton of goals Absolute ton of goals Yeah, wonderful player Wonderful player And wonderful person Well, there's only one way you can get fit Is to run And uh, most days we go out here and we run to start with And then, uh, then we play with the ball So what formation are we playing? Well, we're going to go with a 3-5-2, but that's quite flexible. I think we could also play a 5-3-2 with that lineup. Um, I think you've got Ramsey and, and uh, Zippy up and down the flanks. The three centre midfielders operating as they do. Probably, I would have of them. You could rotate them all, all around quite nicely. I'll probably have Hazard sitting back a little bit, pulling the strings with Doughty and McLaughlin, given an opportunity to you know break forward and sort of you know on a on a rotation. I think the forward line speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I, you know, if you think about our formations that have served us well over the years, that as a formation probably is the formation that took us to the Premier League. So I think you've got to go with that. And who's managing us? Well, it's going to surprise most people. Morris Malpaz. No, that's, not, that's sorry. You, I, <laughs> I hate the fact that you've got massively silent on me. <laughs>
0: Frantically checking my notes.
2: Yeah. No. Got um, me. Certainly, yeah, no, <laughs> certainly not Maurice Malpaz. You, yeah, for me, Lou Macari, it, it, you're sort of sport for choice, and that's why I put our dealers on the bench. That's why Hoddle's in the team. That's why McMahon is nowhere near it. <laughs> um, I think, for me, Mac- Macari is the one that, you know... I appreciate he had a lot of staff around him at the time, but Macari laid the foundations that several of those managers then went on to develop. Much like what happened at Chelsea with what Hoddle did and Hullet built on and Viali built on. I thought for me, Lou Macari was our equivalent of Hoddle at Chelsea. He established a certain expectation in terms of levels of fitness and professionalism. You know, he had he he was notorious for having his contacts and spies around the town, making sure that the players didn't step out of line. And whilst I think that era of management is a kind of bit of a bygone era, I think that is something which shows kind of, you know, true management nows and actually about eking absolute fine margins out of all of his players. I think it was probably the right time to leave when he did for both well certainly not for the club i would argue but if you think about the 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 scale of the opportunity he had you wouldn't you wouldn't have um you wouldn't have faulted him for moving on to a club like west ham and if you look on at his career you know he did a fantastic job at stoke went on and you know picks up the manager's job at celtic appreciate you know in time the kind of techniques and the way the game changed probably caught up with him and obviously in his you know out away from the game you know he had his own tragedies as well you know his his autobiography is a fascinating read and appreciate he was also connected with you know a, a really controversial era um, in terms of um, what happened to Swindon after his tenure, you know rightly or wrongly he got connected to that era. I like to think it was a, a little unfair. At the end of the day, he paved the paved the way for you know and and completely revamped how the club started to think and and how the club started approaching being a winning club and. And that, for me, he was he was a bit like the jump leads in many ways for our club. We were going nowhere before Macari came along. And he completely jump-started our club. And, yeah, I mean, what, what more can you say? I'm, I'm not to say that he is responsible for everything our dealers achieved or Hoddle achieved, but like I said, he was the foundation I think they built a lot of that latter success on.
0: Mark, that was delicious from beginning to end. How are you feeling? Oh, brilliant.
2: Yeah, it's great fun. <laughs> uh, so many of those things I just haven't thought about in, in years. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite emotional actually because it feeling f- feeling things that I haven't felt. Like we were talking about, you know, what it was like for me growing up in London as a real youngster. You know, I can't I can't stress how difficult those times were because it's very easy to trivialise being bullied at school, and 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 bullies at school will, will latch into anything. Actually, the silver lining of that is that. The club's got such a special place in my heart because all that did was crystallise my love for our football club. And for somebody to be living where I live and still feel as engaged as any of your season ticket holders that live within a stone's throw of the ground, I think is sort of testament to that, really. And, you know, I've had some, you know, there's been some dark times in, you know, in my life, you know, family events and things like that. And I've always drawn great solace from, You know, emerging out into the open, coming out the concourse of the Arkles, and that all opening up in front of me. It's got such a special place in my heart that, yeah, as you probably tell, you couldn't shut me up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean,
0: this this episode will come in at about just over two hours, and frankly, I could talk for another two, but we will leave it at that. Mark, thank you very much.
2: You're very welcome, buddy. You're very welcome. Good run by him
0: and the Low Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree, although I'm Wiltshire. I spent most of my sort of adult life outside of the county, Devon, County Durham, Tyne and Weir, back down to Bristol. And I never went much as a kid either, the sort of same amount of games as, as you probably did. And as a result of that, I've never lost that sort of feeling of excitement when I go to a game. So I've never sort of... if it was If those floodlights were looking down on me every day... And say we weren't going for a great spell, I think that would probably maybe bring me down a little bit, make me feel a bit depressed or whatever in a football sense. But yeah. because I'm an out-of-towner, it just, every time, and I still get it, and I don't think it will ever go because we've had some pretty rough times and that feeling is not gone. It's just that feeling of when you are there, you just win 3-0, lose 3-0, you still have that appreciation. And I still can feel the anxiety following games while watching Grandstand and then the viddy printer um, when, when a goal went in in the brackets and you just had to do that quick take to see if it was Swindon. I can still feel that anxiety <laughs> today of when, like, oh, there's been a goal, oh, it's okay, it's, it's somebody else, it's just...
2: Yeah, I mean that—that that pretty much sums up my my kind of away following. Actually, when I was a lot younger, like I mentioned, CFAX earlier, mm. I remember just you know constantly dialing in, refreshing that CFAX yeah. page, just you know literally going, oh, when this refreshes, is it going to pop up that we're now a goal down? And and it was quite funny because um, I, I do remember that that became a real religion for me, a real obsession. Yeah. That CFAX update. Oh, yeah. And, but that happened at a time where we had a real downturn in fortunes. It was kind of after the, you know, the the one 0 Sunderland game. I remember I really got into C F A X and you know the away games and whatnot. And obviously, I don't, I don't think, you know. I mean, I just remember sitting there watching, thinking, have I jinxed us by getting C It seemed like every time <laughs> I looked into C we ended up sort of throwing games away or conceding late equalisers or um but yeah, that that C for me became my, my window on the Swindon away world. Unless of course the boys were playing in London. Um at which point that was a you know, that was standard for me. I would always be able to go to those games. C represents
0: the 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 administration the years of the late 90s rushing home to see what the uh, 390 was gonna what was gonna offer up and just hoping and it also one of my vidi printer memories is Culverhouse being sent off for Everton in the first minute and seeing that flash through and just being like because oh, we were we were well confident with that going up there and then one minute Culverhouse sent off and you're just like not today
2: <laughs> uh, well one of my funny enough one of my earliest CFAX memories one of my favorite memories was the signing of Nesta Lorenzo oh yes I, I, I remember that popping up under page 312 I'll never forget it it used to news be and look, brief. news and brief yeah, news and brief exactly and um, and I remember we'd saw and I was like is this some sort of wind up and obviously don't don't get me wrong at the time we were challenging for what is now the Premier League we were a really strong outfit yeah. um But I just remember thinking, we've signed a bloke that's played in a World Cup final. (laughs) What's going on here? And and obviously you knew that Aussie had such massive pulls, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I, I, I remember just being sort of stopped in my tracks and... Yeah, I, I, you know, but back then, obviously, there was no way of sort of saving that clipping, or um, you know, or, or even sort of you know taking a, a picture on a digital device. But I, I know, I, I mean, that would just be a prerequisite now. You know, Swindon signed World Cup defender Nesta Lorenzo. Um, yeah, magical times, simple times, but really magical times.
0: Less than a year later from that World Cup final. That's that's the key for that. that that's what was so insane
2: yeah yeah uh, yeah it really was and actually obviously he played quite a few games at the World Cup and um, I remember a particular goal line clearance um, I think it was against the Germans in the final maybe I remember just seeing like you know highlights of Nesta like you know chasing the ball back he was about to dribble over the line and he lunged in like Nesta always did like the lunge in um, (laughs) and clearing this ball off the line the most acrobatic clearance I thought blimey we've got a player on our hands and I could never back then. I could never quite understand why he wasn't making appearances. You know, like obviously he had a run in the team, and then he sort of stopped playing. and And I I remember being in the. um, I used to sit in the Arkles quite a lot. Actually, that particular season, my uh, my uncle um, is a long standing steward, or or used to be a long standing steward at the club, and he used to sit in between the home and the away fans. He used to look to your right, and you'd see all the lads that were in the reserves or the youth team sat there. Um, and I remember seeing Nesta, and I remember hearing like the players saying, you know, talking about him being fully fit but just not playing. I was like, what a waste of a player! Mm-hmm. But he must have been on quite an appearance bonus, I would have thought. Um, so yeah, you kind of understand why he stopped playing in the end.
0: There's footage from Italian ninety, and it's probably a, it's probably a sending off or the penalty in the, in the final, where I still feel pride when I see that number thirteen um turn up in the melee of argumentative <laughs> argentina players and i'm like there's nesta i yeah, there's I, wa- nesta. I watched the uh, diego maradona documentary and that when that game came on i remember just like yeah, he's coming where yeah. is he there he is <laughs> <laughs> just the, the, i think he's in the national anthem um in the documentary and you see nesta i'm like go
2: on nesta yeah, barking it out, and he—I remember—he just looked like a monolith of a player <laughs> as well. He, he just had this like incredible kind of monolithic presentation where it just looked like I don't know it. He sort of looked like um, sort of like the White Cliffs of Dover. He just so faced and he looked hard as nails. You thought there's nothing ever going to get past Nesta. I remember one particular game, Millwall away, we lost one-nil, and I never forget Kevin O'Callaghan bent a beautiful free kick over the wall past um, I believe I think it was Fraser that day, straight in the top corner, and um, Nesta had been on the pitch who actually gave that free kick away. Nesta been on the pitch, booted. I think it was Teddy and booted him up in the air. Um, gave away the free kick, but yeah, it was just the most savage hack that you know you could imagine. Um, and I remember going, "Oh, that's wonderful." And the next thing, you know, the ball's in the back of the net, and I was like, "Yeah, but that was all right." It was Nesta. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My last uh, uh, Nesta memory is not too far, uh, not too long ago actually. Uh, he was assistant manager of Columbia um, until last year, and a few years back, I saw them play at Fulham. Um, and he he I spent most of the game. Every time he stood up, I was like, "Oh, there's Nesta!" I didn't, <laughs>
2: didn't have any interest in the game whatsoever. Changed. He doesn't. He hasn't changed either. Nope. He's ageless. It's absolutely wonderful. He just looks the same now as he did back then. He's just got slightly less hair. Um, yeah, our oh, wonderful memories. Wonderful memories.
0: I think sport in Lisbon came round around that time as well, didn't they? With Figo. I, I, I
2: think you're probably right. Yeah, I, think, not- I think so. It's it's not one that I remember, but um, I mean, there's I I remember one particular game. Remember South End game away from home again. That that wasn't a million miles away, and we we gave it. I think ended up. I think it was three two, and we scored three absolute belters. And it was the first time I remember Steve Steve Cow. I think he rounded the keeper to score the winner and slotted it in. And I just again, it was like the proximity of fans to the pitch. Mm. The fact there'd been I think it was i I'm sure it was five goals, may have been four. I remember Paul Burns scoring absolute belter for South End and everyone stood there and applauded. Um but yeah, I remember Steve Cow scoring. It's the first time I'd heard the town fans erupt with chants of moo <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he was a he was another sort of mercurial character for me. Um I used to really like Steve Cow. Um full of full of tricks and trickery, so lightweight on the balls, he was so tiny. But um yeah, that was that was an interesting era. Yeah, I remember a goal he scored against Bradford at home in a
0: 1-0 win. Tony Warner uh, played for Swindon in goal that day. I think it was his debut. And I still, it was a good goal. But, you know, those snapshots of memory where I can still see that ball bending in. Lovely.
2: Yeah, lovely. He was he was very polished act, Stevie Cow. I just remember when he pitched up from Villa, he was just, yeah. he was so polished. But clearly still raw. Um, and, and the club management kind of fancied him, but he just never seemed to get a run of games. You know, he just never seemed to play week in, week out, week in, week out. And yeah. And then he just sort of, sort of, you know, disappeared off into the sunset one day and never to be spoken of again. But um, yeah, that, I mean, there, there are a few games in that, that era. I remember I was, um, I I think I was at university back then. Um, And I, I just remember that, Th- those trips were extra long for me because I was coming up from Canterbury. So, you know, Essex was very reachable. London was very reachable. Swindon was still reachable, but it, it was a bit of a mission because it then meant obviously taking in the A2 as well, out of the A2M2 out of Kent. Um, so... Yeah, that was, that was a a very interesting era. Obviously the the McMahon era was a a really interesting era, certainly at the start, very exciting, obviously involving a, you know, winning a, you know, winning the league and, you know, thumping our nearest and dearest rivals. Um, I, I, yeah, I, that, that season went in a blur, but then I was at university. So (laughs) I think most, most people's university years went in a blur.
0: (laughs) In a different way. Um, all of these teams that you mentioned I'm just thinking 1992 93 must have been absolutely amazing for you so west ham charlton and millwall all there bristol city's in there oxford and bristol rovers oh,
2: yeah lovely yeah yeah what a special season um <laughs> yeah I mean, you yeah, know different 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 times um, very very exciting times times that for me you know i just remember just feeling optimistic all the time back then um and yeah, well, I think we held our own, to be fair, in the majority of those games. I think, um, you know, we, we, we certainly, um, you know, we had, I always remember that era, we always had very, very talented players. Um, we always had a bit of money to spend. Yeah, we always had to balance the books and invariably one or two big names might have gone before the end of the season. Um, but I think we were kind of spoiled in that era. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do remember getting more than my fair share of victories, um, to go and rub some noses in it at school. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, magical times when I think back to that era.
0: Lovely. Okay. At the time of recording, uh, Steve Bruce has just been appointed manager of Newcastle United and his coaching staff includes Steve Agnew, who, and I've mentioned this in previous, uh, My11s, who was playing for Leicester that day. And if you watch the footage immediately after the penalty was, was given, you see a close-up of a, you know, of Steve White sort of, you know, downplaying it, Martin Ling going in for a kiss, and then you see Agnew come into the shot, say something, and kind of push and walk off, and I would love to know what Agnew said <laughs> um, when, when, when during that moment. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I mean, God, without sort of harping back to that game, I mean, I I can't begin to, I remember talking, again, I was really quite young at the time, I think I was only, I must have been 14, 15 maybe, and um, I remember coming out of Wembley with that feeling of justice had been done, as opposed to the Mm. sheer elation of a couple of years earlier. And I remember feeling real pity for those Leicester fans because obviously it it was like the second year it happened to them on the bounce. And I bumped into this couple that were kind of stood next to a hot dog stand and they sort of just shrugged their shoulders and went, do you know what? Fair play, don't care how you've done it. Fair play, you're up, good luck. You know, I'm sure you'll enjoy your time next year. After what happened a couple of years ago, you guys deserve your your sort of day in the sunshine. And um, I I remember thinking that was a really classy gesture from their fans. But I think, yeah, it, it it... It just seemed to be a, um, yeah, I kind of knew that we, well, choose my words carefully. I kind of felt that we hadn't necessarily been as squeaky clean in our way to the top as I would have (laughs) liked. But yet, at the same time, isn't it quite ironic that as as football fans, particularly with our national team, you know, if you're an England fan, we often lament the fact that we haven't got that ruthless, nasty Mm. streak. And I don't believe, I mean, that's something that Steve White had. Steve White had that ability to just play the game. And I I mean that in the broadest sense. I'm not saying for a minute that Steve White was a cheat. But Steve White knew if there's contact in the box and you were moving at pace and you went down, you'd win a penalty. I've no doubt any good striker would have done the same in his shoes. Um, And and Steve White had that cunning and he had that killer instinct. And and it was utterly ruthless. But do you know what? Fair play to him. Um, You know, he gave us years of entertainment at the county ground, you know, goals and so on and so forth. And yes, I know, you know, Zippy smashes home the penalty, but obviously we needed that break at that point in time because, you know, Agnew in particular was having a stormer in midfield alongside Steve Thompson. They were running the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, you know, he, yeah, like you, I would like to have known what Agnew said, but quite (laughs) frankly, I don't give two hoots what he said at the end of the day, as I'm sure Steve White didn't. And that ruthlessness is what's got Steve White on my bench. But I mean, in terms of sort of, I remember one player really annoyed me it really, really annoyed me. It was, it was during the, the sort of Kingy days and we'd signed Curiton and Tony Thorpe. And I'd, I'd developed a bit of a friendship with Mark Devlin that went from, from Swindon off to QPR and we've always kept in touch. And I remember speaking to Mark Devlin on the phone about two weeks, ironically, before we signed them. And I don't think my conversation with Mark had anything to do with signing those boys, but it just seemed like an obvious thing. It was quite clear that they were going to be, both of those boys were going to be released. And I remember that team was like, you know, we, we could do with goals in that team. And, and Tony Thorpe was like an ex-1 million pound footballer. Yeah. Curiton had scored goals everywhere he went. And I can't remember the game, but I remember Thorpey in one of his games was absolutely, he had a shocker. Hold him. Oh, older, And he was coming off the pitch and he either threw the shirt at Andy King or he, they crossed words and thought was never to be seen again. And I just I just remember thinking that is a guy that I suspect is is just turning up for the cash. You know, he's you know, uh, uh, and I, I'm probably horribly wrong because every time you hear Premier, you know, sort of, and professional footballers speak, they often sort of take umbrage at those kind of comments. But I just remember thinking those two as a partnership could have been really special for us. But it just didn't happen, and I remember thinking, you know, what has happened to Tony? Thorpe? that he's gone from all this money being spent on him to coming to the county ground. It's all set for him, you know. He's, you know, we're a decent, decent side. You know, we've got, you know, we've got half decent players. Those two at the top of, the, you know, at, at, at the top of the formation should, should guarantee us thirty goals. And th- yeah, it just didn't happen with him. And uh, I remember just really taking a dislike into him that night. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um...
0: it might have been. I'm thinking it was old. Oldham was was a night game early on and we were 3-0 down quite quite comprehensively. I think Richie Wellens played for Oldham that day and um, we were fighting back and I think Thorpe scored in that game but Curtin missed a very late sitter um, in front of the town end and Thorpe didn't play well that, ga- that game and I just remember going and the reason why I said Oldham so confidently is because I remember being excited by those two, and then watching them in person, and Keurten, it just didn't work out. You know, the guy's still scoring goals at a, at a reasonable non-league level, um, but they just—it was never gonna work. I remember walking out of that and saying to someone that this is not gonna work out, and it's one of those on paper, what a what a signing,
2: but yeah, I mean, I mean, more recently, you know, it, inevitably you talk about lads like James Constable, and I think. He's he's an interesting lad in that he used to like to obviously wind us up. There, there had been quite a bit of banter in the media to and, to and fro between Swindon and Oxford, Paolo and Constable. And I, I just said there are so many reasons to dislike James Constable. The fact that he was purported to be a Swindon fan through and through, yet we couldn't quite get that deal across the line for him. Um, that he was... Um, you know, he was he was somebody that was fair to say outspoken um, in in relation to our rivalry. But also, the other thing that sort of leads me to dislike him is that whilst he's probably done very well out of his lower league career, um, his career probably peaked at Oxford. And actually, he, if he had joined us, I suspect he's the kind of player that would have scored goals for us and probably would have had a, a bigger career in the league. Um, you know, it's so it's a little bit like you know, <laughs> I told you so. Um, <laughs> You know, you you like you know those are the those are the players you you kind of feel like we've won the moral high ground with, um, and obviously the fact it's been so long since you have actually beaten the pox, um, that, that for me is a moral victory that I cling to. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna pretty much put water over that. I think because our reputation at the time, he probably would have been at the club for about a year, no more, and he might have done well, but Conal Benson. Um, fine in that first season and they were swiftly moved out for the next wave so unless he was De Canio's type of player what Leon Clark was supposed to be that sort of aggressive forward man um, I imagine he would have been bombed out after about a year but it would have been still I remember that news when the bid had been accepted I was working in Gateshead and I just remember just like oh blimey a bit of me thought we were just trying to unsettle him um, but of course, uh, Oxford got the uh, got the uh, the moral high ground victory across the board that year.
2: Yeah, they did, and we got James Collins, and we were quite happy with that. Yes, so, um, yeah, no, I think it all worked out in the end. But um, yeah, as a as a player, that obviously you know when he when he would come to the county grounds, um, mm. th- there would always be you know an interesting bit of bit of spice mixed in there i mean i yeah i would i would never advocate obviously what what happened at, you know at their ground with you know our our club initials being burnt into the pitch and things like that but i remember it was just a particularly spicy time Yeah.
0: and,
2: and you know it, that derby was was um you know it just took on extra resonance and i think you know the disliking of, of james constable i think was all part of that mix
0: there's, there's always obviously a line but when a football match is like it's got that feeling of poison in the air that poisonous atmosphere I've I've seen it at the county ground and I've seen Swindon be the victim of it I've definitely the 2014-15 um, season when Bristol City beat us 3-0 at Ashton Gate when I was stood in that away end you could tell every fan and during the warm-up the Bristol City players were putting Every practice shot top corner and they were just, you could see it and when you watch the Premier League footage of that Manchester United game you can tell, and we and Mark Hughes found out the hard way, that every fan is sort of like swaying in the breeze because Man United, not very popular Man United were in town and it yeah. oh, it's venomous, obviously we crossed the line or a couple of fans crossed the line by uh, throwing a few punches in but there is that Sort of tribal element of excitement, regardless to what what you're sort of, uh, well, how you live your life, really. I mean, I'm not, I'm the you know a coward who would never uh, raise his fist on anyone. But when you're in the ground, I mean, I'm not a swear, I'm a standstill,
2: but I love the feeling of that sort of tension. Well, let's let's be honest. You know, um, I've gotten who the opposition was now. Um, I think it actually, I think I think it was Oxford, where Nathan Thompson just ran and jumped and sort of. Yeah, that was. Crystal awesome City. see. Yeah. Bristol City, yeah, celebrated with utter delight yeah. in front of City fans. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you can't help but, you know, but love it. You know, if the club sort of runs through your veins, um, you know, you you you, know, you you can't help but sit back and go, do you know what, that's utterly wonderful. You know that actually it's probably very naughty <laughs> and, and utterly, utterly incendiary. Um, but I mean, why, I, was it,
0: why was it made brilliant? It's because... Their fans were posting complaints, wanting to complain to the police about it, and it really got into their skin that one. It was so funny and yeah. I mean this is a club that champions um images of Scott Murray putting his hand to his ear against Cardiff, but you know a right back jumps up in the air in celebration and harry toffolo within a snapshot celebrates the sending off of one of their players and it's yeah. called the police <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah i mean it's it, it's it's interesting isn't it i mean i think um you know lawrence vigaru perfected the art of winding up the opposition supporters over the last couple of seasons and uh, to a to a point um i mean he, he spoke very um i thought he spoke wonderfully on the on the pod a few weeks back when you did your piece with him and um i think you know as he points out, you know, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna give it, you've got to be willing to take it as well. And I think that does cut both ways. Mm. And I, I've always been I've always been really sceptical about the moral high ground that we as fans adopt when, you know, when we get the wind ups. And as much as I lambast James Constable for his behaviour and some of the comments he, he made against us, part of me kind of salutes it at the same time. You just wanted him to do it in a red and white shirt. Um you know, and, and actually it's going to be interesting moving into the new season um, in terms of, you know, Richie Wellens has talked a lot about, you know, injecting a certain character, you know, bringing certain characters into the dressing room. And, you know, I, I, I'm I'm i going to be intrigued because it's not immediately obvious to me, but I'm going to be intrigued as to who brings that to the fore this year in Red and White. Um, because obviously we've got lots of new faces that have, that have joined the squad. There's been a, a pretty comprehensive overhaul, and that—that's a big question mark for me with the upcoming season. You know, who is who—who's got that in their veins? Who's got that sort of that the pulse of of the fans? And who's going to have that connection like Lawrence has over the last couple of years? Swindon needs a shit house. Who's it going <laughs> to be? care <laughs> plays it back in again, and no offside. And Taylor has scored surely means it's
1: the Premier League for Swindon Town now! Hi LSPod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy,